Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1206 to 1219. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1206. Story number one. Their arms, many. Their reach, far. Written by Lords of Duke. This is an informative video to let you know, hey, it's not that bad, friends. You've borrowed more money than you reasonably can afford to pay back within the original guidelines and made a choice outside the original agreement. This, well, it's been known to happen a time or two in the past. In those unfortunate instances, payments are still due and corrections to be made. Except now, there is a few cautionary tales to be added to your list of concerns. Let's start with this. This is not necessarily what is going to happen to you. We'll be repeating this line a few times, so brace yourselves for it. Now, Quebec Tribal Cluster in the Eastern Spiral Arm can tell you, war is expensive. We can affirm this to be true. We financed the first five significant walls of expansion and defense. They borrowed a sum of money which required repayments being made at regular intervals. Then, they chose to default on a schedule and sent an instructive, f-frequently vulgar snap video of them insulting us and our generosity. Whilst yes, we do have a somewhat sinister reputation, and the Kvix incident may sound familiar, what does not sound familiar is the deal we made after that unfortunate choice to turn away from the righteous path of repayment. The deal summarized in a single phrase would be, Pay us what you owed or we finance a sixth war. The Kupfuk again chose finance, and in reply we financed the coalition of the Glorious, who then spent a small sum of money and a lot of time repaying the honor debts accrued when the Kupfuk attacked their respective homeworlds. The sixth war was substantial in its depth, cruelty, and degree of recovery inflicted on the Kupfuk homeworld. It is said that as the war drew close, most of the general staff's firstborn were shot into the upper troposphere with railguns financed by our funding. That, however, is total fabrication. Those were mash drivers, completely different physics involved. And it wasn't their firstborn. Secondborns were also included, mostly in the form of rounding errors. Now this is not necessarily what is going to happen to you. Our next chapter is the fate of the Reslin mercenaries. They requested a consul to speak on their behalf at the Urk at their homeworld and provided a summary of their needs, a list of their minimum expectations, and the financing for the first two-thirds of the negotiations. At the conclusion of the negotiations, the other party involved, the Urk, were no longer a space-bearing culture and would choose a simple agrarian lifestyle for the foreseeable future. And that seemed to be that... Until, of course, the betrayal of the Reslin mercenaries, who chose to withhold payment on the debt and cited that their contract was the utter extermination of the Urk. Now, again, we have a reputation to uphold and uh, live down, as the case has shown, and we did not lie about that feature. What we did not do is complete eradication. We're selective, careful, and in some ways family-based. So, we did not ask the wrestler mercenaries to approach this issue with some circumspect awareness of the tenuous condition, and instead, we seized their financial capital and began to sell it to various debtors in the market for a slightly used habitat cluster with a standing population of 28,000. 
500 occupants. In some cases, visitation with the wrestler mercenaries can be arranged for further clarity. Contacting the nearest cultural zoo or sex trade emporium may be a solid lead. Now, this is not necessarily what is going to happen to you. You, the deny, requested a full-on embargo, contraband, influx cessation, and orbital occupation for six of the nine Autoran homeworlds, and we have obliged. However, the repayment schedule has not been maintained, and our resource partners have explored the idea that you, the deny, are reaching out to military-grade assets for sale by what you believe to be our rivals in an attempt to avoid repayment, and perhaps even to venture into seizing property not due to you. We could threaten you, and we can do that easily enough. We could provide you with more examples of our responses. We've barely scratched the surface thus far. We could even hurt you directly. Again, that capability was in our reach. Instead, we're going to let you handle this all on your own. Frankly, we're intrigued as to how well you'll do. Your debt to us is now forgiven in full, which, by the way, we cannot claim as a tax write-off, despite what you may have heard in the various media representations of us. However, as a bit of insight, since we're in such a forgiving mood, we also are forgiving all of the debts to anyone who successfully occupies, destroys, steals, or permanently disrupts any and all of your space-bearing, land-based, and aquatic assets. In short, you are a walking, talking collection of cash, and everyone can smell you. Perhaps you should have begged for our cruelty. With sincere appreciation for the business that we've engaged thus far, the Mafia Collective Western Spiral Arms, Soul 3, Italy. It's not just business, it's family business. End of story. Story number two. Of supreme importance, written by Quarange Juice. My what? Zombie survival plan. Everybody has one. I won't laugh if it's done, I promise. Explain, zombies. Oh, jeez. The tear quicksit don't have the concept. No, it doesn't translate. Not even approximation. Okay. So there are these, uh, well, um, the kind of monsters from our mythology. There are at least uh, 20 variations, but let's go with the actually dangerous kind. Uh, the monster is created when any creature is infected with a retrovirus. Uh, the effects of this virus are as follows. Uh, the victim first goes unconscious, and then they reawaken. Perhaps seconds later, they go into a murderous frenzy. All infected around them are targets, and contact and any body fluid causes infection on any time scale from weeks to within seconds. They also bleed constantly from their eyes, mouth, and nose. They have full range of physical capabilities and survive months without food or water. It's effectively a hyperabies. How do you survive? Uh, um, um, oh, come on! It's theoretical, don't hyperventilate. No, I will hyperventilate because your culture has a reference point to extrapolate such a disease. It's entirely fabrication. You know how we humans are, all a story. Uh, okay. Well, um, first, uh, I'd like to, to try and isolate myself from the creatures. They aren't intelligent. As smart as a psychotic dog, they'll go around obstacles and communicate within the swarm. Well, um, then a suitably tough punker would work. Uh, 
Do I prep time? No. Imagine the outbreak happened. Oh, let's say it today. It doesn't matter all that much. Then, um, um, I'll try use the company harbor to get to the MPSB bunker. They'll have set up a refugee center, and we'll be getting people off world. All right, uh, that's a good one if the government survives. Uh, now assume that the government breaks down, and space travel is impossible. That's not likely, is it? Absolutely hypothetical. But can you imagine Congress allowing the outbreak to go unquarantined? No. So, uh, the government falls and we can't get off world. Uh, no prep time. Uh, I'd get somewhere remote with a low population. The Himalayas, perhaps. Or the Antarctic colony. Ah! But then we'd run into the problem of food production. Yes, uh, that does make sense. Whales, perhaps? No. Hawaii! They can't can, can they cross water. Let's say no. Then Hawaii. Perhaps Cuba, Guam. A remote island with a reasonable infrastructure. But military forces remain can clear the area. And, and, and further infection is prevented by the low indigenous population and the surrounding ocean. We, we can farm from the island and wait without the plague. Good point. I like it. Comprehensive and quite likely to convince people to join us. You! All right, glad that, uh, whatever that was, uh, it, it settled. Uh, where did that come from? Never mind. I don't want to know. Um, now, uh, will you tell me why you're holding the door shut? Uh, and what is that noise on the other side? The scenario wasn't hypothetical, was it? There was an accident in Lab 28 today. I didn't notice that Dr. Marrero was infected until we had all unsuited. I knew I should have stayed on tier Quixia. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1207. Story number one. Divide and Conquer, written by Mad Mechanic slash Silver Glove Gaming. Humans. They were the first race to reach the stars. The first to claim other worlds as their own, and the first to discover that they were not, in fact, alone out there. And they accomplished all of this nearly 10,000 standard galactic cycles before anyone else. When the Valen rose from the forests of Kunara, and turned their collector's sights in the stars, the humans were waiting for them. They extended a hand of friendship, offered them technology, knowledge, and armistice. The Volan accepted without a second thought, and soon the first union was born as a joint government between the humans and the Volan. And for another 5,000 years, they cooperated and coexisted, founding millions of colonies throughout the galaxy and establishing hyperlanes that are a foundation of our modern way of life. Then the hives of Dalsula united across their entire world, and spread like a nightmarish disease throughout the galaxy. The humans and Volan tried to be peaceful, but the hive ignored them. They sent diplomats, but the hive consumed them, and before anyone saw it coming, the hive attacked the first union. At first, the Volan began losing worlds so the humans sent their grand fleet to intervene. But little did they know that the invasion was a distraction from the targeted strike on Olympia, the human homeworld. And at this news, the Volan pushed the hive from their territory and sent aid to the humans, exposing their own homeworld. These came to be known as the Swing Wars, so-called because the tide of war kept changing to favor a different side. 
It raged on for an amount of time that none can even remember. Millions of humans and Volan colonies were presumed destroyed or irredeemably damaged. Most species currently part of the Galactic Council were uplifted or discovered by the First Union during this period. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said about the species discovered by the Hive, who saw them as nothing more than food. In the end, thousands of species, independent and vassalized by their own discretion, from garden wilders to death wilders, all stood together with the First Union against the Hive and, to the dismay of the extremely xenophilic humans and Volan, drove them to extinction. Years passed, and the world's lost were declared memorials. The galaxy moved on, alliances were formed, allies were betrayed, foes argued, all was as it should be. Then we discovered humans again. A ship from a small star cluster arrived on Olympia bearing the flag of a Herithra undiscovered race. Then, upon investigation, it was discovered that a group of human colonies survived the swing walls and were trying to rebuild so that they could go home. But upon discovering that they had been declared the site of a war memorial, the self-proclaimed Orion Collective declared themselves independent from the human empire. The galaxy held its breath, anticipating another war. No one had ever gone against the oldest race before. And then the Empire recognized their independence and invited them to join the First Union as its third member. Not long after, another world was discovered with humans and Volan, but this time their world had been sent back to the Iron Age, with humans and Volan city-states competing for trade routes. They were uplifted, their differences reconciled, and they were given choices. Join the First Union as a new member, or go it alone as a sovereign nation with support from the Union. They chose the latter, and became the United Clans of Sanharo. This trend continued for millions of years, humans and Volan being discovered everywhere, either together on the same world or apart. Many times they had evolved features to compensate for their new homeworlds. Sometimes they were discovered as hyper-advanced utopias that were nearly on par with the original nations. Other times they were discovered as paranoid primitives during the Iron Age. This became a new normal until a new world was discovered. A Cars 14 Hell World and the site of an ancient joint genetic modification project between the Volan and the humans to make their colonists viable for such a hellish environment. Problem was, the only way to modify any beings was to modify the genetic code of a fetus in gestation. In short, a colony ship full of Hell World compatible Volan and human infants crashed on a planet during the swing walls. If it wasn't for the care of the primitive species, very similar to humans, these children would have died within a few days. But they didn't. They rose from the wreckage and hunted and gathered together, learning from the semi-sentient beings that nurtured them. But evolution is often cruel. While the Howl world humans evolved and overcame, the Volan devolved back into primitive pack beasts that would terrorize human groups. But somewhere... Somehow, something deep inside of them awakened, and they began to coexist, not as beastmaster and beast, but often closer than family. Then they were discovered. The galaxy was shocked. The two oldest and the most cunning races adapted and evolved to thrive on a hell world, 
And yet, through some deep embedded instinct, they were still inseparable, and had managed to build a primitive space-faring civilization. Madness! Utter madness! The galaxy almost immediately decided that these beings were too dangerous to be left alive, and assembled the largest war fleet since the swing walls to eradicate them. You can imagine their surprise when they arrived only to see what seemed like the entire human and Volan fleet from both within and outside the Union. A message was broadcast from the largest of the warships, and has been remembered as a sole reason that no one has ever attacked humans or Volan. To those with common sense, turn around. To those of you with useful foolishness, you proceed with the fate of your entire species at risk. We all know what happened to the Sanzara following the standoff. As it turns out, Terrans may have been 300 years behind the point that most races discovered FDL, but with the Terrans' increased adaptability and rate of advancement, it's estimated that they were only around 30 local years from discovering it themselves. Soon, after learning that their beloved dogs, who had been their loyal companions for as long as they could remember, were in fact the devolved counterpart of humanity's first ally, they set to work to genetically modify them to uplift them back to sentience. On that day was born the United Nations of Terror, and small nation then quickly grew to the same stature of the Union, and seeing human without their distinctly grey skin and black eyes, or an extremely loyal Volan with fur soon became as common as their natural counterparts. The term divide and conquer soon applied to both species. They quickly became the backbone of the galaxy's science, exploration, labor, and military, accomplishing feats that they're physically impossible for other species. From lifting literal tanks to save fellow comrades to studying without protection environments that would tear any other sentient apart. And because of this, when the Terraway was opened and the Elder Chaos invaded from its Eldritch universe, we sent them our own monsters. We sent them the Terrans. And Hal itself halted in fear. End of story. Story number two. Terra Invicta, written by Silver Glove Gaming slash Mad Mechanic. Ever since the swing walls, the mass species uplifted by the First Union have been trying to prove their worth to the oldest species in the galaxy. The Trixler were one of them. They were physically a small race, even by Volan standards. Tribeetle was two limbs for manipulation and the privilege of having evolved on a garden world with no natural predators. This was their downfall, as they constantly felt the need to prove themselves to rough worlders and death worlders. This led them to abusing a small quirk in physics in an attempt to impress the humans in Volan with a workaround on the long strips through hyperlanes. The idea was to bend space and bring two points closer together in 4D space, before punching a hole from point A to point B. In short, portals. They were conducting their experiments in a trinary star system near the galactic rim, chosen for the large amount of resource-rich planets present. The system no longer exists. When the portal was activated, there was a flash that could be seen from as far away as nomad nations orbiting beyond the galactic rim. At the system, the scientists in it, everything really was just gone. 
It has placed a deter into an unknown universe. The supposed hole wasn't punched from point A to point B. It got punched into something in between. A horrifying place beyond the comprehension of sentience from which arose a threat unlike anything the galaxy had seen. We called it the Elder Chaos, and to this day, hundreds of years later, it is still debated whether it was a transcendent entity or the universe itself. What we learned too late was that people died from a type of fear that no one had experienced before whenever they looked at it. Then, a Terran scientist accidentally gazed at it, and nothing happened. We learned something about the Terrans that day. Their homeworld had produced something within them that they called existential dread. The same fear that had killed so many was just a memory of Earth to them. So it was decided. The humans in Voden discussed with Terra to send their soldiers to fight the void-spawned Eldritch horrors that followed the Elder Chaos. It didn't take much to convince them. The Union representatives only had to compare the enemy to a continent on Earth called... Australia, for every Terran to go into the front lines in order to prove them wrong. We expected a slaughter. In a way, we were right. We just didn't expect the slaughterers to be the Terran. System by system, planet by planet, trench by trench, Terra's sons and daughters fought against the Elder Chaos, and surprisingly pushed it back. They didn't care about the differences in species. They fought as one. Apparently, this was common on Earth, where pack hunters would work together for mutual gain. And then, the Terrans surprised us again. The video went viral on the Galactic Network. It showed a Terran trench with their humans and Volan, or hounds, as the Terrans variant preferred, fighting back a horde of entities that had, thankfully, been censored to preserve the viewer's mind. Suddenly, one of the hounds can be seen falling to the ground in a puddle of red blood, obviously having been hit by a project of some kind. Without warning, a roar rose up from the humans in the trench, some animalistic instinct enraged at the death of a hound. Then they charged, complete mind-clouding fury, the kind that is only seen in wild animals on other worlds. And humans weren't the only ones that did it. Hounds did the same when humans died. The galaxy no longer knew who to be more afraid of, Terrans or Elder Chaos. Yet, they continued fighting, eventually pushing the Eldritch Nightmare back through the very portal it came through and sealed it in. But the Elder Chaos couldn't go down that easily, so in a last-ditch effort at revenge, it opened a portal in the way of Earth's orbit and pulled it into the other side, while simultaneously transporting every Terran in the universe as well. The galaxy mourned the loss of its newest member and its heroes. Monuments were constructed on the world where Terrans fought, and the First Union continued trying to get their Hellworld counterparts back. Then, one day, Earth reappeared in a system near where it used to be, in a stable orbit around its star in the Goldilocks zone. No one had been watching the spot of space since Terrans vanished. They started reappearing in places throughout the galaxy, equipped in full combat gear, often still in combat formation. One of them appeared inside the Galactic Council Chambers, a human, his visor shattered, a bandage over his one eye and a missing arm, the barrel of his mass accelerator still red-hot from the recent use. 
Council recordings showed that he looked around, oblivious to the momentous occasion that was the return of his species, before throwing his rifle to the floor and speaking to every shocked council. You were right, um, it was worse than Australia. The enemy was on par with Canadian geese. No investigation was made into the faculty of this statement, and most Terrans just laugh every time they hear it, so there may not be a definitive answer any time soon. Bloody hell, Wilders. Just be glad they're on our side. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1208. Story number one. The Power of the Plow, written by Damascus Seraph. When humanity had finally reached FTL status and expanded into the nearby systems to colonize what planets they could, they were welcomed into the Galactic Federation as a member now that their species has proved that it could attain FTL of their own. Finding their position in the galaxy to be unenviable, only a small portion of the galaxy lay unclaimed and only a few dozen habitable planets lay in humanity's reserved space. Surrounded by three other much larger, more powerful, and technologically advanced neighbors. And while a few dozen planets seems like an abundance, other states contain hundreds. Though as mankind continue to learn about their neighbors and estimate their position on the galactic stage, they notice something peculiar. Even the most densely populated worlds in the Federation had barely a few billion. Only seven having more than Earth. Even after mass exodus to newly formed colonies, Earth still had a population of 5.6 billion. Still, in the top 20 most dense planets. Not only that, but population numbers in each state were a third the size scientists estimated for the number of planets that they had. The Earth's economy began to integrate with the galactic economy as a whole. Many saw the reason why. Food was the most expensive non-luxury commodity. A can of beans on Earth would cost a credit or two, but on any other world it would cost as much as 20 or 40 credits. Seeing this, and the desire for many humans to have the old dreams of a family farm, the United Nations of Earth pushed for increased focus on agricultural and colony worlds, even paying to resettle millions of people from Earth to the colonies to both decrease the strain on Earth and to develop new planets. None in the Galactic Federation paid much attention to the new members, except for one, the Talaka, a moderate military power in the Federation, but restrained from taking the world's reserve for humanity until they destroyed themselves. But unfortunately, they became FTL-capable and a member state of the Federation, taking all plans and hopes of getting those worlds that they saw as their birthright back peacefully. For now, they gathered their strength, recouping their expenses into future colonization into war production and bribes into their neighbors to remain uninvolved. Within a year, most farmsteads became self-sufficient and began exporting excess produce across the galaxy, lowering food prices by half and further each year that went by. As soon and more farmsteads became more experienced and were able to produce more. Demand for food, already high, became higher as members began to loosen and eventually revoke their rationing policies. As human foodstuffs and intensely eased the galactic-wide famine, most members, though, remained unaware of the cause of the famine's ending. As many attempted to increase funding to their state-run farms to produce more food for their people. 
for the next half a decade a new normal of surplus food enriched the galaxy, as previous famines were somewhat common in every state, but rarely on a galactic level. Due to all the nations using the minimal amount of land for farming and agriculture, instead of using it for mining and other industrial means, putting their full focus on industrial and military might to keep the balance of power in the galaxy. But on the seventh year of humanity joining the Galactic Federation, the Talaka declared their claim for the worlds given to humanity, saying that they were claimed by the decades before the humans ever left their worlds, and that they rightfully belonged to them, and that they would take them by force if necessary. Humanity was stunned, but the Federation was not surprised by this outcome. Many larger nations have strong-armed smaller ones into giving territory or tithes, causing younger nations to become vassals in all but name to their neighbors for protection. Humanity had not learned this lesson yet, and would pay a terrible price leaving them on their home planet after getting so much space. But humanity was a stubborn race, and publicly proclaimed that they will not give up their homeworlds, asking the Federation members to assist them against the aggressor. But none came to help. The Talaka assured in their victory prepared their fleets and raised their armies ready to sweep over what meager defenses a species of farmers could put up. But humanity was not going to go down easily. They had known of their position in the world and had planned just in case of this eventuality, publicly proclaiming that from now on any food exports were to cease to be stockpiled for war. This is met with the apathy and confusion by the rest of the Federation. Why would they not export more and gain funds to fight their albeit futile war? As soon as the Zalaka fleets jumped into human territory, they were assaulted and hit and run tactics, striking at their supply lines and slowing their advance. As they neared the only choke point in the star lanes that led to Earth itself. Yet, as the Federation members looked at the odd tactic in space battle, None noticed their dwindling food supplies, until the Talaka were a few star systems away from Earth. And suddenly, the Talaka and all other members of the Federation were suddenly having a massive famine. The increase in consumption of food after rationing was removed and had made the previous emergency stockpiles last mere months instead of years. Now, everybody was scrambling to purchase food. The prices jumped, thousands of credits for every ounce of food, but as an emergency meeting in the Federation was called debating on how to solve the sudden famine, the human representative went on stage, proclaiming that they had surplus food ready to be shipped. In fact, they had enough to feed the entire galaxy. But, unfortunately, they might need it all for their war against the Tlaka. If only the war could end swiftly and in humanity's favor, they might have food to spare. Otherwise, they would have to burn all the food that they were stockpiling to prevent the Talaka from getting them, along with the extremely fertile farms producing them. Just look at how much food we made last year. A holographic graph showing food exports then made it very, very clear that humanity was the only thing that could stop the galaxy from starving. The entire Federation Senate was silent as the human representative laid out their demands. The Talaka were to surrender and cede half a dozen worlds and a hundred systems to the humans, and food trade would resume. And any further aggressive actions against mankind will be met with the ceasing of all trade of food with, with the entire galaxy. 
With no other choice, and with a fierce protesting from the Talaka, the Federation Senate voted in favor of the Human Peace Treaty, partly due to half of them being offered a warm celebratory meal if they were to vote yes. The aftermath of the war was swift. The Talakan Empire collapsed under the weight of their massive spending on military that they expected that they would need to hold the human worlds, and their unfulfilled promise to claim the worlds for their people, along with those that they had conquered rising up and asking humanity for protection or even annexation. The entire galaxy realized the power of the prow when everybody else was too focused on making swords to feed themselves, and humanity had capitalized on that to become a major power. End of story. Story number two. Personal Space, written by SlowAD2584. The scene at the Starbase Molkop security office was chaotic. The insectoid being Clictic was in pretty bad shape. His carapace was badly mauled and a split in several places. Essential internal fluids were dripping out. The human death welder, Charlie, was doubled over, occasionally vomiting into a bin. Both were currently rather disgusting. This was a somewhat common case of first encounters between species going poorly. The mall cop security droid had to settle things down and quickly. Both sides were threatening genocide to the other when they go home and tell their races what happened. As the human was, well, a death welder, he was in far better shape after... Whatever happened, and the insectoid was. So the droid focused more attention on Clictic, who may need medical detention soon. Can you describe to me what happened here, sir? Clictic with trouble speaking. It appeared his mandibles were rather forcibly mistreated. I merely said hello to the passing human, exchanged casual pleasantries, and he assaulted me. Look at what he did to me. I think three of my legs are broken. Hey, screw you, pal. You assaulted me, they even said. But upon looking at the insectoid face, Charlie immediately heaved and lurched back into the wastebin. The acidic fumes from the human vomit were starting to degrade the air recirculation filters. Wow, humans were full of surprising horrors. Please hold your comments for later, sir. It is Galactic's time for a statement, the droid said in the most placating tone possible. He... He didn't need to rip my antennae off, the insectoid complained piteously. The droid noted that indeed the insect's sensory antennae were missing. This is bad. The human had mutilated the poor citizen. Well, I didn't. You bet I ripped that damn thing off. The mention of the antennae seemed to have triggered another wave of vomiting. When I get back to tell my people what you did to me, they both said in near unison. All right, that's enough. Neither of you are going back to your people just now to start a war here. I am going to separate you two, get you both medical treatment, while we get representatives from your species here to figure out how to resolve this diplomatically, the droid said, and alerted the proper station authorities. A few days later, diplomats from both species arrived and were about to meet in person at the station. Both diplomats were coincidentally females, and had become quite friendly over FTL video calls while both were in transit. They both felt this misunderstanding could be resolved quickly, and were eager to each meet the other in a more formal diplomatic setting. The human female was at the meeting room first, and was seated. Then the insectoid diplomat entered the room. Hannah 
The human tried her best to cover the shock at seeing a five-foot-tall, more or less cockroach in person. Bravely, she stood up and walked towards the bug, right hand outstretched to shake a uh, limb. So nice to finally meet you. The insectoid nodded her head and stepped towards the human, then scurried up her chest and threaded her antennae down each nostril of the human female, down into her lungs in a customary greeting. Wait, uh, it was all Hannah could manage to say as she reached up, grabbed the antenna in her nose and violently shoved the insectoid off her chest and across the room, and with shaking hands dragged the antenna out of her face. It was a testament to Hannah's diplomatic professionalism that she managed to say, while trying not to vomit, We may need to discuss oh, personal space here. Oh, sorry about your... Where were those important? Uh, well, I'm honestly, I couldn't just uh, to stop myself. While she tried to recompose herself on shaking legs, arms propping her hunched form upright over the table. Hannah is honored to this day for her titanic strength of character and will, and the insectoids remain eternally grateful for that moment of understanding. That their insectoid race was actually not immediately killed with fire whenever they could be found. Sometimes interspecies customs result in a culture shock that needs truly heroic understanding. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1209 Story number one, on species Q2S03013, written by Mean Gator. From Ministry of Science, Department of Xeno Intelligence, to Ministry of Xeno Affairs, CC Ministry of Defense, Classification Level, Top Secret. Report Type, Q2S03013, ISM01.04. Title. Assessment of Species Q2-SO3013 ISM-XX Our standard scientific reports about life forms in our galaxy and ISM-01 are about sentient life forms. As per standard policies in every surveyed star system that hosts S1-capable sentient species is periodically monitored to assess their progress and an ISM-01.XX report is created for each progress step. Previous report Q2SO3013 ISM01.03 was created 20,000 cycles ago, and the Sentinel's suggestion that this species should be closely monitored was not followed. Ignoring the Sentinel's warnings and following the average progress of node species, the next report was expected no sooner than 30 to 40,000 cycles after the previous. The current report was hastily compiled after automated monitoring stations in multiple star systems reported that an unknown species had achieved FTL and the species proved to be Q2SO3013. Planet Species Details Planet Type Terrestrial Supergom Equatorial Radius 2.95946 Clue Mean Radius 2.95646 Clue 1.5 Gom Mass 20.176.89 times 10 to the power of 24 Camu 3.37 Gom Surface gravity, 9.3047 loot to the LT squared, 3.01 gom. Orbital period, 22.068.636 LT, 2.24 cycles. Species, designation Q2SO3013, Kingdom Animalia, Phylum Chordata, Class Mammalia, Reproductive Type Sexual, Number of Genders, 
Below, you can find to summarize a compiled report so far. Begin summary list. Summary report of Q2SO3013 ISM 01.01. Lifespans, 60 cycles. Civilization level, S0. Hunters. Industrial methods, stone, bone tools. Diet, hypercarnivore, 70% plus meat. Able to consume and metabolize, but not survive on plant-based food. Predation type, ambush slash persistent hunting. Preferred game, large fauna. Corollary. There are several semi-sentient subspecies, all in the family of primates, who demonstrated a potential for fully developed sentience. The most promising is a hypercarnivore that specializes in hunting large fauna using ambush tactics and primitive tools or persistent hunting if ambushing the prey is not possible. Summary Report Q2SO3013 ISM 01.02 Lifespans 90 Cycles Civilization S0 Hunters slash gatherers. Industrial methods, fire, stone, bone, wooden tools. Diet. Omnivores, carnivore diet preferred. Greater ability to consume and metabolize plant-based food. Predation type, ambush slash persistence hunting. Preferred game, medium to large fauna. Corollary. There are three close genetically related subspecies that are fully developed sentience, though being very close at a genetic level. Average difference, no more than 5% of their genome. The last of them is quite more aggressive and demonstrated higher intellect. The population of the other two species is quickly diminishing since they are not available to compete with the newer relative, and we predict that will go extinct in no more than 10 to 20,000 cycles. Summary of Report Q2SO3013 ISM 01.03 Lifespan, 100 cycles Civilization level S0, agriculture. Industrial methods via agriculture, multi-material tools. Diet, omnivorous balance requires both plant and animal-based products. Predation type, domesticated animals, agricultural products, ambush persistence hunting when required. Preferred game, domesticated animals, medium to large fauna when needed, other plant-based food. Corollary. As predicted by the last report, the only fully sentient species that remain on this planet is the one that appeared last. Though primitives, they possess a high level of intelligence, and this was verified in several specimens that were brought to the Sentinels' navs. They were extremely potent problem solvers, but they demonstrated very erratic behavior that could not be assessed and allowed time frame. This species needs close monitoring because of their high intelligence and the constantly demonstrated erratic behavior make them highly unpredictable. End of summary. It was unfortunate that despite the Sentinel's suggestion, the monitoring time frame for the species was not altered, and the initial one, based on galactic species average, was followed. However, they managed to go from an agriculture to FTL in less than 20,000 cycles, demonstrating an unprecedented pace. The following data was compiled by combining information from several automation probes in nearby star systems before being intercepted and going offline. From the data we were able to gather, it was verified that the species with the unknown FTL method is indeed Q2SO3013. Furthermore, from the final broadcasts, we were able to deduce that the species uses nanomachines and has at their disposal extremely advanced AIs as they demonstrate the ability to quickly bypass the defenses of the automated probes. Summary Report Q3SO3-013 ISM 
lifespan, NA, unable to assess, civilization level S3+, tentative, FTL method, unknown, industrial methods, antimatter, nanomachines, AI, diet, NA, unable to assess, predation type, NA, unable to assess, preferred game, NA, unable to assess, corollary, Due to Q3SO3013's unprecedented rate of advancement, first contact protocols should be reassessed. End report. From Ministry of Xeno Affairs to Ministry of Science, Department of Xeno Intelligence, CC Ministry of Defense, classification level top secret. Report type Q2SO3013 ISM 01.04. Title Reassessment of Species Q2SO3013. We have first contact situation with species Q2SO3013. They managed to decrypt the probes and broadcast a request to contact us in a star system Q2SO3A24. Their broadcast included information for their civilization, though they were very careful not to include intelligence that can be used in our military. It was decided that first contact team will be assembled with the members from all five council species with the level S4 or higher. A new report, ISM 01.05, whose summary follows, is compiled and pending review. Summary of Report Q2SO3013 ISM 01.05 Lifespan, 225 cycles, Civilization Level S5, FTL Method, Space Folding, Industrial Methods, Zero Point Pump, Antimatter, Nanomachines, AI, Biotechnology, Metamaterials, Diet, Omnivores, balance. Predation type, NA, artificial. Preferred game, NA, artificial. Species name, Homo sapiens. End report. End of story. Story number two. Trash is relative. Written by a glass of whiskey. Have you heard the latest news? New species humans bought a completely worthless system. No gas giants as far as the telescope can see. Ah, those poor species. Never know what they get. No, that was the strange part. They specifically requested this system. They even called it a bargain. Why? Wasn't it the same old thing? Weak sun, low asteroid belt. Yeah, but apparently the humans like a couple of planets. Planets? No one in their right mind wants those. Asteroid belts, gas giants, and big suns. That's where the money is. Don't they know that? But will they do with it? Beats me. But I will keep an eye on it. Hey, how are you going to see the game this weekend? Uh, I'll pass. See you later. Later. Oh, oh, you won't believe this. Some new species has gotten sold an even more worthless system than the humans last month. That would be a tough one to beat, after all. Weak sun, no asteroid field, and no gas giants. What were left to take away? Sunning the void in between the stars? No! The humans are terraforming. Don't be silly, that takes ages. Resources expended are too big to ever... It's just silly. Where did they even get the idea from? That's not the part you won't believe, really. Cause I really don't believe that first part. They have already settled them. On one of them they had to use airships cause the surface would just melt anything that they put down there. You can't be... What kind of hellish creatures are they? For these internal mind pictures of an enormous creature towering above him, with skin as thick as walls, spitting acid and stomping around. Don't know, I have requested some images of an 
an associate of mine. Um, it's so exciting, don't you think? Oh, come on. It's unbelievable for a reason. Man, he really wanted that photo evidence. Might just be someone putting a prank. If it's true, and I'm not saying that it is, how long do you think that they will last before they give up? Not long, that's for certain. But sad. There, there, it's still not as sad as there must have been after that spanking your team got last month, if I remember correctly. Hey, you said you weren't going to watch that one. Not with you, no. I know how you become when your team loses. I do not want to be anywhere near that meltdown. And this was a sure defeat. Sorry to rub it in your face. He managed to make a face of at least suggested that he was trying to look sad. Harsh, man, harsh. Anyways, see you later. See ya. Pictures are here, his friend screamed as he ran down the corridor down to his office, a binder in his hand. Take it easy, what's with the archaic format? These things are not as easy to get as you know. We are not supposed to interact too much with the newest species, giving them ideas and stuff. Remember that guy that passed himself off as a god? Fine, but couldn't they at least be digital? Part of the deal. But look! He opened the binder and pulled out some large folded A3 pictures. Well, these are huge! Why are you always impressed by the smallest of things? Look at the pictures, you doofus. All those strange bipedal things, the building robots. Look so tiny and weak, probably meant to fit in narrow spaces. Seemed optimized for climbing and versatility over anything else. Those are the humans! Look, there is one without the environmental suit. Those are the humans. So feeble, didn't even have a proper thick skin or fur. Those things look like they would blow apart in a light breeze. How do they do it? Come on, look, environmental suits, all of them purpose-made for a specific environment. Look here, not even pressurized. That was the planet with the acid rain that melted everything they sent down. Looked quite nice, actually. Wouldn't mind a vacation there. Although, living there would probably not be fun at all. All right, I've seen your pictures. I need to work. Can I take another look at them later? They did look really cool. Boring. Fine. I need to show the entire accounting department anyway. Want to see their eyes exploding when they think about the risk calculations. He ran off, almost bouncing off the walls. Did humans have any hotels amongst the airships? It did look fantastic. Just a quick check, and then back to work. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1210. Story number one. The Life Eaters, written by Faulty Logic Engine. Winds whipped against Braxima's leaves as he strode as fast as his roots could carry him. Faster! Come on, faster, please! But it was no use. Every cell in his body screamed out for rest, shooting pain through every branching limb and tendril. His pseudo-heart beat harder, and his eyes glanced at his pursuer. He didn't seem tired, or even concerned, as it approached. Its body was composed of a thin, furred cuticle layer covered in knotted muscle, wide-shaped eyes that scoured the surrounding terrain for its horrendous food source. Every step that, uh, that animal made seemed so effortless to the creature. Baraxima commanded his roots to move, but... They could not obey longer. His eyes locked onto the quadruped as his maw filled with blunt crushing implements opened up and enveloped his form. He could only watch and scream. Then he felt his legs respond 
he careened forward onto the cold metal floor of his bedroom as his roots pulled him away from the life eater. Bedding soil was thrown across the room as he scrambled to get away from the phantom threat. Twelve simple eyes focused on the safety of the room around him. The life eater wasn't real. Another nightmare. Bruxima's tendrils snaked out and grappled the furniture around him and ponderously pulled him back into his roots. A quick glance at his chronometer told him that it was still very early in the morning. How unfortunate. He didn't try going to sleep again, not with his mind racing as fast as it was right now. He would rather not start first contact with a new species while sleep-deprived, but he apparently had no say in the matter. A melodic sigh escaped his vocal valves. Why did he have to ask Rolu about her homeworld? Bruxima was a caracou. Much like twelve of the nineteen Federation members, his kind fed on light. Their worlds were peaceful, monochrome gardens of life, and over a billion years, they evolved sentience. The other seven member species were only a little different. Three of them fed on the reactive chemicals in the atmosphere of their planets, while three others could somehow feed on rocks. Rolhu was something else. She was from a species 19, the Olurian. And they were not plantoids, fungoids, or lithioids. They were animals. Their world was home to the heterotrophs, life-eaters. Thankfully, Hokine diverged from the life-eater ancestors by forming a symbiotic relationship with the Argi. The Orlerian were light-feeders, orthothrops like him, but the story she told... Bruxima shivered. These species never experienced predation. It was not in their instincts to react to something coming to kill him because they simply didn't need to. The Karaku did not have any organisms that ate the living on their world. And yet, he developed a feeling he should never have known. Bruxima had to borrow Rolhu's words for the alien sensation. Fear. That existential dread of seeing the thing that actively sought your destruction, Rolhu's kind evolved surrounded by life-eaters. She spoke of the creatures that existed in the waters her species resided in, Great swimming creatures with conical teeth that could easily shatter Orient's shells. Carapace things that stalked the seafloor for small beings to cram into the serrated gullets. Camouflaged beasts waiting to snatch you from the water and... It was too much for him. The idea alone was terrifying. Rolhu spoke of differences between them and the monsters of carnivores and herbivores. Of course, the life-eaters were horrible enough to feed upon each other, too. The Orion's emergence onto the galactic stage had spawned a great deal of worry. Life-eaters were an existential threat to every other sentient life-form. As the years went by, more and more life-seeded worlds were found. Again and again, monstrous life-eaters had come to evolve on them. If there was one saving grace, it was that no sentient life-eater had ever evolved and even if such an aberration were to come into being, it would surely destroy its kind in some war of annihilation in their brutal survival of the fittest ecosystem. Space-sparing life-eaters are a common joke, or perhaps a horror story. If such an impossibility became a reality, hell itself would surely be unleashed upon the universe. But it was impossible, as sure as one plus one equals two. Life-eaters were too malicious to make it to the stars. It doesn't stop that the concept of such a nightmare scenario from haunting his dreams, however.
Braxima pushed the thoughts aside as his stomata opened wide to let him breathe deep. I'll get a stimulant drink and keep me awake then, he decided. He was going to be part of the party that would initiate contact with the newest discovered sentient species. They had precious little data to work off, but they had a name for them, at least. His mind had to be sharp and his demeanor as welcoming as possible. Tomorrow, he would be one of the first people to ever meet sentient species number 20. The Humans End of Story Story number 2 ETAA, written by Admiral Marsupial 3. We were discovering hyperspace travel while the humans were still hitting each other with rocks. We are the Oatar, one of the origin species of the Galactic Systems Council. Over a millennia, we have shaped the galaxy and its politics. We have guided and sometimes beaten down countless races in an attempt to maintain the galactic immunity. And human, parental, and pack-bonding instincts affected a bigger change than any one action, war, or decree had accomplished in a hundred thousand years. The Extraterrestrial Adoption Agency. This one idea changed the galaxy. Not just the enormous effect that it had on humanity's expansion, but the change that expansion had on the thinking of other species. With even some of the more isolationist species opening up diplomatic relations with new races for the first time, Idiots. The other races were suspicious at first. Why would anyone willingly take in the unwanted and orphaned offspring of others of their same race, let alone those of an entirely different species? Everyone else treated them as a burden, an unwanted responsibility to most. Some even forced them into indebted servitude to uh, repay the generosity of society. And in some places, they weren't even treated that well. Some of the poorer races were the first to accept the offer, happy to get the burden off for the already struggling economies. The humans didn't realize how closely these adoptions were watched, many suspecting that they would be made into brainwashed spies or taken away for experiments. But they weren't. They were raised and looked after in human society, treated as equal and the same with a few adjustments where needed as any other human Others began accepting for various reasons, some for the same reason as the first, happy to get rid of the burden they could do without, some out of guilt, some for their underhanded reasons. It hadn't gone smoothly, some humans were xenophobic, and as any other race, and it had taken a fair amount of government money to help integrate them into human society, which had put a strain on their economy, and some of the galactic rivals, such as the Kylev, wanted to add to that pleasure, sneaking in what they considered to be defective young, ones that wouldn't have made it past the first few breaths if the humans didn't take them. Amy Miller was the first to make the rest of the galaxy take note. Eleven Earth years after the first adoptions, she was a Tafayan by birth, but there was a fast-maturing insectoid race and Amy was already studying at Oxford University while only 13 years old. She made the final breakthrough for hyperspace travel, from FTL travel to hyperspace in travel in 70 years was unheard of. It had taken even the quickest of the origin species the equivalent of 150 to 300 years. The Tafians definitely didn't have it. It built up slow over the next few years. The Hyrule rock star reached number one. He would eventually be the first non-human in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Rock Girl 
became the elected government representative. The Lawan became a major corporate CEO. A disabled Kalev, becoming a member of the very exclusive Galactic Trade Guild, raised a few surprised eyebrows on her original homeworld, where the guild was well-respected, and raised a few smug smirks on her new homeworld. Then they kept coming, and in bigger numbers, human corporations suddenly made big inroads into the galactic economy. Humanity's already quick scientific advancement exploded, and their art and culture exports were in high demand. Almost all areas of human society were experiencing a massive boom period. And while the humans were still the majority of those pushing that expansion, there were a fair few non-humans at the forefront too, and almost all of them led teams that had at least minor alien involvement. That is when we finally worked out the human paradox. How such a chaotic species that managed to split into 2,000 groups on just one planet was coherent enough to advance to the galactic stage and spread amongst the stars without descending into anarchy. They used that chaotic nature. Some friendly races will collaborate from time to time, hoping that the different way of thinking. A brain that functions slightly different will give either side an insight that they wouldn't have had on their own. The humans can do that with themselves. I've seen one human even do that on their own. Don't get me wrong. If the answer is intelligent and logical with the information available, we beat the humans every time. But for finding those answers that you don't have all the information for, for the ones that need the almost crazy idea that looks so simple after, the humans put it off way too many times for it to be luck by now. All those hundreds of groups of men, hundreds of ways of looking at every problem, they will think of approaches that will take the combined effort of three or four other races. What everyone else saw as a burden just gave the humans even more ways of looking at a problem, gave their society more ideas, and humans are dangerous when given ideas. So are some non-humans when raised by humans, it turns out. When my family group suggested that we adopt a quill, I will admit I was apprehensive. We had raised four offspring that we can be proud of. We know how to raise an Utah, and what if the bond didn't form? I know they said that it's effective, but we don't form parental or lack bonds with other species naturally. On an ethical level, I was worried about what to do if one or more of our group didn't take to the infant. I was eventually convinced to go along with it, as all three of the females said that they weren't going through with carrying another child and Chloe. The other male didn't feel strongly enough to risk annoying them. I had the hormone treatment and took part in the suggested bonding activities, designed to replicate the parental instincts humans have naturally have. And I have to admit, looking down at him now asleep in his nest, you couldn't change my mind for any price. Just like any other children, as it should be. Who knows? Maybe he'll be the Utah's first Amy Miller. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1211. Story number one. If an alien and its human psychic roam the galaxy, willing to do just about any job to keep the fuel tanks full. The only issue, most clients have never seen a human and they're terrified by the sight of one. Written by Slightly Sonic. Okay, guys, uh, they'll be here any minute. Giuseppe said to two huge, burly threen behind him. You guys armed? Yeah. 
Rosin growled as he pulled out a large blaster pistol. Don't worry, we got you. Well, good, Jizzip said nervously. Be ready for anything, you know what they're like. Gorazion just rolled his eyes and smirked at his fellow Threen. Tormrun just grinned. They knew Beth. She was one of the nice ones. Well, nice for a human anyway. There was that one time, but that was just because there were Terrans involved. She couldn't be blamed for that. To say that the Federation humans and Terrans don't exactly get along is like saying that matter and antimatter aren't exactly mixable. A small cargo ship landed on a nearby pad. Jezeb's fur stood on end. He took a deep breath. It was a human, and everyone knew that they can sense fear. One hint of weakness, and they were all over you. They flinked disembarked, and right behind it, there was a human. It was one of the smaller ones, around 1.6 meters or so. But from what he had heard, it was the little ones that you had to watch. He heard that they had to be twice as deadly in order to survive to adulthood. Please don't let it be a Terran, he silently prayed. He looked back at Gorza One. What do you think? Jizzip asked. Does it look violent? Gorza One bared his fangs. Beth wouldn't hurt a fly unless it was a Terran one, but he just couldn't resist. It's a human. All of them are violent, he growled. Just stay behind us and you'll be fine. Jizzip let out a little yelp and darted behind them. It was all the Guzuan could do to not break down laughing. Hey, Scales, Beth chuckled. Look, it's Gauls and Torm. The flink squinted his eyes. He couldn't make out the details just yet. Here's our contact with them. Yeah. I see a little bit of purple robe behind them, she laughed. I think they're scared of you. The flink let out a trilling laugh. Yes, I'm certain that I'm the one that they fear. In a few minutes, they reached the Jizzip. Jizzip peeked out from around the two hulking threen. Keep your hands where I can see them, human, Gorzwin growled and winked. Huh. What are you going to do about it, huh? Threen? Yeah, she said as she stuck out her tongue. Jizzip quickly ducked back behind the threen. Don't some creatures flick out their tongues just before they strike? Want to find out, human? Gorzwin snarled menacingly as Thornrum started to laugh. Jizzip looked at him as if he'd lost his mind. Was he trying to intentionally slight the human? Now, now, the brink said smoothly. We're all friends here. Jizzip, why don't you call off your muscle and I'll do the same? He turned to Beth. Why don't you back up a little so we can actually do business? Huh? Beth glared at the two three. Fine. This don't mean I'm backing down. Uh, of course, of course, the brink said smoothly. Nobody is challenging you, Beth. He said in a perfectly serious voice as he aimed three of his four eyes at Beth and the two three winked. Beth backed up a few yards and growled. Once she was at a safe distance, Jizzip stepped forward and the flink handed him a tablet. Our shipping rates are as listed, he smiled. These are assuming legal cargo. Yes, it is completely legal, Jizzip yelped. It is just that I would like the shipment to be, um, uh, d- d- discreet. Uh, th- th- there is currently an issue involving trade agreements, and I would not like to, uh, um... Right, the flink grinned. That is covered under the standard rates. Just pay up and start loading. Good, Jizzip said, completing the transaction, never taking his eyes off of Beth. Got lucky, Threen, Beth snarled and wink. You're the one his fortune's favored. Gosworn spat as he flared his nostrils. A three-wink. 
as they turned to leave. As they left the landing pads, Jizzup turned to Grozen. I'm most impressed with both of you, he said. Will you both be available when I load my cargo, and would you be interested in going on a retainer? We got you covered for the cargo load, and we can talk about the retainer if you want, Grozen replied as he reminded himself to buy Beth a route next time they beat up. End of story. Story number two. Survey report written by Skandalia. I am disappointed to find an error in your report, Fenway. This was a serious accusation. The UG Planetary Survey was a prestigious post, and few errors were tolerated. The reports were sober statistical exercises in documenting planets for future mineral extraction. All ratios, gravity while analysis, fuel route proximity, those sorts of things. Tucked into an appendix of an appendix were notes of intelligent life that may be present, and what it would take to A. pacify them, B. buy their allegiance, or C. exterminate them. Benet sat across from his supervisor, looking at the shared screen projected on the desk between them. He flushed Yenna, and then back to Greed, trying to figure out how he'd defend himself without sounding undignified. Sir, he began with a snort, not a great start, he thought. Sir, uh, I stand by every statement in this report. I spent twice the requisite fifty-year study period to compile it. His skin flushed blue for a moment with embarrassment. He didn't need to draw attention to how overtime he already was in this assignment. His supervisor flushed his skin a dark crimson as he scrolled the screen to the relevant page with a highlighted line. Intelligent population, seven billion. And with all that time you didn't miss this error... I know you've moved out quickly, but I never imagined that you would be this unprofessional after your stellar service in the field. Benet was embarrassed, but he held it together this time. This was the moment he had been dreading for ten years since he finished and submitted this report. He shifted nervously to one side and his chair made a surprisingly loud creak. But he kept his skin green. This is not an error. I stand by my assessment. The supervisor's skin was shifting from crimson to purple as he spoke. You'll only embarrass yourself further if you make me delve into the data to find the error and show it to you. The supervisor's skin was turning blue. He knew he needed to calm down. No reason to break the boy's spirit. Now please, just fix the error and return the report. Benet knew how hard this would be to defend. He'd have to speak quickly, check the population density assessment. Then he added hastily. There is a population counts by continent, region, and community. You'll find all things add up. The supervisor's skin flashed yellow for a moment. Good, Benet thought. I have his attention. This can't be right. He mumbled after several minutes of scrolling. 1.6 million individuals in the 22 square miles. Benet said nothing. The report's language was sober. His supervisor wouldn't have noticed anything special about the planet or its people if he'd just skimmed through the report. This time. He was truly reading it, and there were some shocks in star. Reproductive age at 12 years, size average 70, 70 kilograms. kilograms. Oh my god, they're rodents. Benet let relief show in his skin as it grew a warm shade of crimson. Yes, sir, they are. The statement was too outrageous for a report, but Benet had done his very best to paint that exact picture with the data. After several more silent minutes of reading, the supervisor leaned slowly back away from the screen. So, what do you recommend? Benet collected himself. 
There is an enormous value in the planet's mineral stores, but I can't see a way forward. The silence hung in the office again for several minutes. Vinay and his supervisor both knew what the UGPS had never failed to recommend a strategy for harvesting minerals from a planet. We can never pacify them. They have no unified government, let alone a common will like most large population species. He trailed off for a moment, considering whether to get into the discussion of how utterly inadequate that category was to describe the species, or to bring up his proposal for a new category, ultra-large population species. That was a convention for another time, so he continued. Besides, even if we bought Morph 1 generation, we would have to negotiate with a whole new generation in only 30 to 40 years. This also brought to mind the question of the relevance of the early work of his 100-year study on the quickly changing species, and his concerns about their unprecedented exponential technological development. Also, a discussion for another time. That left only a third option, a politically inconvenient last resort. Benet thought the problems with this were the obvious, but he decided that he should be said nonetheless. Of course, we can never exterminate them all either. Suppose we bathe the whole planet with plasma for a decade. If 150 survived, they would rebuild their population back to the millions very easily in only 200 years. By my estimates, the mining rigs would barely have spun up by then, and they could be overrun. Silence again. The two wore their yellow skin without shame. This was an embarrassment. But not just for them. This is worse than a mistake. And Fenay knew it. It was heresy to claim that a planet was beyond the reach of the UG. Fenay didn't like the facts. But they were still the facts. So the question is... Fenay's supervisor began, locking eyes with Fenay and speaking very deliberately. As he tapped a few keys on his screen... Why didn't you record the location of this system in your report? As he spoke, the supervisor cleared the location information from these report fields. Benet's skin slowly faded black to crimson with relief as he matched his supervisor's gaze. And his deliberate tone. Just a simple mistake, sir. Mistakes happen, Benet. Forget it. Still, no reason to file a useless report, he mumbled, as if to himself as he cleared the report off his screen. Take some time off. Report in ten years for your next assignment. He cleared his throat with relief as he dropped eye contact. Good work. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1212. Story number one. Food War, written by a glass of whiskey. They had picked up a hitchhiker, as the creature had described itself. Madman in a ship about to explode was the term more commonly used amongst the crew. A lone explorer of far-flung worlds, or a, a lunatic, in other words. This human was mostly polite, but he had been complaining non-stop about the food since he got aboard. Something about no taste. He could certainly eat, often consuming four or more of our portions in one go. But apparently, it wasn't up to his liking. Finally, some members of the crew got tired of this endless nagging, and the notion that they would have to hear it constantly for another month before reaching the next station became an unbearable thought. With a lot of padding and an ad hoc modifications, a brain scanner was fitted on his hand. Hocked up to the food duplicator, it would produce whatever food the human could think of and had eaten before. Data needed to get the taste just right. First time, it blew the control chip for the food duplicator, as did the other three times. 
Neither the human food was just ridiculously complicated, or the machine tried to work around something harmful. At the end, the human convinced the team to turn off the safety features, an act that they would soon come to regret. Kari, it was called, biological weapon that filled the room with smells that would rip a lesser mind into pieces. It was only last-minute caution I was standing outside the room in case of a duplicator caught fire, as it did last time that saved them. Even then, two of them temporarily lost their smell at an accident. After that, the human's quarters was moved to where the modified food duplicator was, complete with an added airlock, safe from the human's culinary habits. Far from home and far from any civilization, the second worst thing after the human happened, pirates, as was required, a token resistance was made before surrendering. In it, one of the pirates was wounded, as was one of ours in return. Cargo would be lost, but they had done what they could be demanded of them. That's when everybody remembered that they hadn't seen the human during the entire thing. The last anyone had seen of him was several hours ago, running towards his quarters. A strange smell started to seep through the air. Was that ammonia? Oh no, the food replicator! It could still only do food the human had eaten, but this was the human that had eaten curry. Fervently, they started waving their arms around to warn everyone to run back to the locker with the gas masks meant to protect against chemical leaks from the engine. Most of the crew got the message. The pirates that hadn't had the pleasure of being subjected to the human before just looked on dumbfounded. They started to sniff the air far too late. What followed was like a nightmare come true. All of their eyes started to turn red. Desperately, they tried holding their breath. A lucky few managed to get themselves knocked out for their effort. The others were not so lucky. Desperate for air, they opened their mouth to breathe and froze, before violently starting to spew forth whatever they'd eaten today, then yesterday, then whatever was left from last week and beyond. Violently shaking, heaving up whatever was left in their stomach sack, eyes filled with blood from broken vessels, the pirates had seen better days. Among it all, the human walked into the room like an angel of pestilence, unharmed from all the chemical weapons. He stood like an indestructible bringer of death, with a plate in one hand and a glass filled with white liquid in the other. His chosen tools were bringing forth terror. The pirates took one look at the creature and did the sensible thing. They ran as all hell, leaving their knocked-out friends far behind. We were frozen by fear, an automatic reflex that we struggled to defeat, to run with them away from the human but when we once again had control over our bodies, they were long gone. Everyone turned to meet our savior. Hey guys, uh, sorry about your friends. Uh, I got a dare from one of the guards for the worst food I could imagine and wondered if you'd like a taste. They looked on in horror as the contents of the plate was revealed to them. This is fermented shark in urine, hokal, pointing at the plate. Fermented horse milk, kumis pointing at the glass of white fluid, and one ghost pepper, a tiny red plant on the edge of the plate. He looked at the gas mask wearing faces. Not up for it, eh? <laughs> I knew I'd win that bet. The perpetrator would be caught and spaced, or perhaps being forced to spend some time in the human's quarters. Yes, 
That was more of a fatigue punishment. End of story. Story number two. The all-consuming, written by hypothetical Shagoth. Quartermaster, what is this filth? A voice snarled down the hallway, echoing past Lieutenant Tasha's desk. Swell, this promised to be enjoyable. Look, I know that a lot fights like the last Kree in the Starvation Pit, and their weapons make some of our engineers need counseling for nightmares or theological objections. But this, this, I am certain violates a fistful of treaties, and would be called unrighteously by even the adversary deities of every known religion. I know my understanding of physical sciences indicates that it shouldn't be possible. Be that as it may, Trooper, but Fleet Medical cleared it as compatible with the majority of the combined forces, and our supply lines have been compromised, repeatedly. But the humans have shown an uncanny guile and aptitude in ensuring that enough of these reach our front lines to keep our front from crumbling. Still, sir, what kind of species could think up something like this? My accounts, their planet is overrun with life. Like most others, there's weather, climates, active geology, apex predators, and aggressive microorganisms. Everything that every other race needed to be nudged to develop. More developed and varied than some of the more, um, fortunate races. But still, how could a species with all of that going for it come up with uh, this? Be glad they did, Trooper. It's saving our collective butts. Oh, you're not the first to voice your concerns. Some including Fleet Brass and Chaplains. We pushed back the humans and eventually they provided what they said was an extremely non-regulation manual on the care and usage of this, uh, product. We were suspicious about some of the claims made in the document, but several R&D divisions back in the core territories have gone through and confirmed every usage. On top of what it says in the label, they can be used as various types of improvised explosives, three kinds of projectile weapons, repair supplies for half a dozen vehicles, and vessel subsystems, medical supplies for more than half of the races in the fleet, and with certain kinds of short range of communication systems. There are also rare but confirmed reports of humans successfully performing rearguard actions against overwhelming numbers using these. Okay, fine. So this Skippy Carlson's non-regulation usage guide is chock full of non-regulation usage for these. That just drives home my point about their base use, sir. At least tell me that the supply lines have been secured and we'll be resupplying with shipments of more sane races. I know the humans are some of the core of our defense and have been at the forefront for some of the roughest defenses. Could we get them back to doing that and leave the supply lines to some of our... Um, Less effective frontliners? The point remains, we need these. The humans are the only ones getting them to us reliably. The Nemesis fleets know where most of our ships must pass through from our core worlds to reach the front. The humans with their dark space stations scattered throughout the void have more options of getting what we need where we need it. So, until we can better secure our lines, we're stuck with these... You don't have to like it. I sure don't. Each time I have to break one out, it hurts my soul. But without them, we'd be dead in space. Fine. Fine. Give me the guide. But I'm not happy about this. You and me both, Trooper. You and me both. 
The trooper stomped off, grumbling, and started thumbing through the Skippy Coulson's non-regulation usage guide for MREs. Page 1, Rule 1, Recipe 23 is for fresh recruits only. If you are issued Recipe 23, by any and all means necessary, reallocate it. I still don't see how they could eat any of these uh, MREs of theirs. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1213 A Gamble on Humanity Written by Bob Crusher I didn't know my uncle very well. Among my family, he was known to be a remarkably solitary man. He was distant in my childhood and absent in my adulthood. It was for this reason that I was quite surprised when he asked for me to hear his deathbed confession. Until recently, he had served as a CEO of an influential investment firm that had held stakes in businesses across the globe. That changed last year when he developed a rare and untreatable cancer. Since then, he'd been confined to a long-term care wing of a private hospital, withering away under the helpless watch of the best doctor's money could buy. It was in that very hospital I then found myself. My uncle was thin and pale as a ghost. He lay in a hospital bed attached to all sorts of life support devices that served only to delay the inevitable. He didn't look at me when I entered the room. Instead, he continued to gaze out of his room's window that afforded a commanding view of the new Yasa Girls downtown core. Sit down, my uncle said, turning his emaciated head to look at me. Despite his condition, his voice remained firm. I did as he told and sat in the guest chair in the corner of the room. Is anyone else coming? I asked. Just you, my uncle replied. Only one person needs to know. I fidgeted uncomfortably in my chair. I brought chocolates, I said to Onawim. I have no appetite, he said bluntly. I didn't ask you here for your chocolates or your sympathy. I have already said my piece to those that needed to hear it. All I need from you is your attention. Oh, of course, I replied, putting the chocolates away and suddenly feeling quite silly. I'm all ears. My uncle nodded and then thought for a moment. What do you know about the age of magic? I was taken aback by the strange question, but quickly gathered my thoughts. As much as anyone. I replied, trying to dredge up memories of long-forgotten history lessons. It was a few hundred years ago, right? Back then, they magically gifted races had the run of things. And do you know how it ended? Because some rare celestial conjunction, the planets aligned and snuffed out the magic in our world. I think it calls the, the Dark Age, right? My uncle balls for a moment, no doubt for a dramatic effect. It's a lie, he said. That's not how the Age of Magic ended. I don't understand, I said. Had the cancer rotted his brain to the point of madness? My uncle didn't skip a beat. I'm going to tell you a secret. My great aunt told it to me before she died, and before my time runs out, I intend to tell you. Hold on, I said, now somewhat skeptical. What does a family secret have to do with the Age of Magic? My uncle shook his head. Not just a family secret, he clarified. This secret is all of ours, and we can't forget it. I won't let it die with me. It wouldn't be right. I looked into my uncle's eyes, searching for any hint that he had gone mad or was having one last laugh at my expense. 
I found none. Fine, I said for a moment. I'll listen. Thank you, my uncle said. Hear what I have to say, and then ask me whatever questions you have. All right. All right. My uncle took a ragged breath. It all started in the age of magic. You have an ancestor, now long dead, who was a shipwright during the age of magic. He lived and worked in the city-state of Kaprovi, one of the few independent human strongholds at the time. He made his fortune selling trawlers to the fishing guilds, a profitable business. By his middle age, he'd made his fortune and become a respectable man in Kaprovi's high society. He could have stopped then, sold his workshops, and retired comfortably amongst the gentry. But he didn't, because he thought there was more to life than building fishing trawlers. So your ancestor set to work building a yacht like no other. It was built on the finest lumber to the highest standard and fitted to survive the ice storms of the far north. He sought to captain the ship and use it to brave the polar sea and chart a passage to the white ocean. At the time, the existence of such a route had been rumored to exist for over three millennium. But in so many years, not one vessel had survived the Arctic storms and pack ice long enough to find it. Your ancestor thought that he would be different, that his ship would be the first to sail the polar sea and emerge intact. He was wrong. His ship became icebound after a fierce storm, stranded a world away from home. Your ancestor's crew was whittled away by starvation, disease, and a fear of beasts that stalked the ice. A month passed before a naval schooner, crewed by fate and sailing on a conjured wind, came across your ancestor's yacht. They rescued him and what was left of his men, then made flank speed to the nearest port. While the schooner dodged glaciers with the help of a clairvoyant, the skipper asked your ancestors a simple question. Why? Why try and do what the greatest sorcerers could not in a vessel built and crewed by mere men? Your ancestor didn't know the answer to that question until he was limping down the schooner's gangway into Kaprovi. As he made his way to his estate, everyone who met his gaze, every longshoreman, merchant, nobleman, and farmer, wore the same hollow expression of abject defeat. It was only then that he saw that when he had sailed north, he had carried with him the hope of every human in Kapvori, the hope that a long, stagnant world could be changed by one of their own. He had broken that hope against the pack ice of the Arctic. For months, your ancestor stewed in his estate, contemplating the state of the world. Humans did not chart the seas because they could not conjure a wind. Humans did not practice medicine because herbs could not fuse bones like a spell. Humans did not wage wars because iron swords melted in the face of fireballs. Humans did not dream because magic made it seem so much easier not to. And so your ancestor concluded that only in a world without the convenience of magic could humans have a chance at greatness. Not a guarantee, mind you. Just a chance. A chance your ancestor decided to gamble on. Your ancestor set to work climbing the rungs of high society such that he could be granted audiences with the rich and powerful. There, his theories found purchase in the minds of kings, warlords, and guildmasters. Those at the top understood all too well the limits magic placed on their ambitions. To them, the mere chance that a world order dictated by humans, by them, was intoxicating. 
Over the course of decades, a vast conspiracy against magic grew and festered in the high echelons of human society. Of course, rumors of its existence reached the knife ears of the magically gifted, but they paid little heed. It was a passing tantrum, they told themselves. Magic was all that made the human speeding life bearable. To them, to rid the world of magic would be to cut off one's nose to spite one's face. A laughably self-destructive overreaction. In the complacence, they underestimated the blinding drive that a grain of hope could give the hopeless. When they least expected it, we struck. To rid the world of magic, it had to be cut off at the source. The threshold, the patch of forest reality in the white ocean where magic flowed into our world from the ether. If it were to be destroyed, magic would soon follow. This, however, would be no easy task. The threshold was guarded by a nameless fortress carved from a volcanic rock and manned by the reclusive order of sorcerers. With this in mind, the conspiracy bided their time as they searched for a chink in the threshold's armor. After decades of patience and cunning, they found one. Just as the history books say, there was a planetary conjunction on the day magic died. What they do not say is that the confluence was the result of a meticulous planning aimed at sowing doubt and confusion. In truth, magic was ended in blood and iron. At the moment of alignment, a convoy of merchant vessels on the white ocean broke away from its shipping lane and made bare speed for the threshold. The convoy's cargo manifest claimed that it was hauling spices to remote island settlements, but in truth, it carried a mercenary army raised in secret at the cost of several city-state treasures. The vessels approached the nameless fortress under the flags of distress. The sorcerers, honorable as they were, allowed the apparent stricken merchant ships to moor themselves to the fortress's harbor. By the time they sensed the aura of bloodlust about the crew, it was too late. The mercenaries fell upon them like thunder. The sorcerers fought back valiantly, cutting large swaths in the mercenary formations with elegant battle magic. But their function was to protect our world from the horrors of the ether, and so they lacked any coherent strategy to combat the conspiracy's attack. I am certain that they died wondering how so many could want to live in a world without magic. They fought bravely, but even magic has no remedy for a sword in the gut. By noon, the halls of the nameless fortress ran red with blood. For the first time in history, humans held domain over the threshold. From that point on, the window to act was small. It was only a matter of time before the naval schooner happened upon the massacre and exacted revenge. The threshold had to be closed post-haste, but sealing a millennia-old breach in reality was not something that could be done by mere men. The conspiracy had planned for this. For years, their agents had kidnapped and imprisoned sorcerers familiar with the arcane workings of the threshold and subjected them to an unending regimen of psychological torture. After decades of trauma, their minds were shattered and pliable. On the day of conjunction, they were offered a bargain enact a ritual to close the threshold and be rewarded with the release of death. They all agreed. The prisoners were escorted from the bowels of the mercenary flagship to seize the sky for the first and last time in decades, and then led to the heart of the nameless fortress. 
There, they gathered about the threshold, that incorporeal gash in reality, and chanted a ritual in some prehistorical tongue. It went on for hours, with each word of the incantation causing the threshold to royal and dim. By sundown, it had vanished entirely. Magic was dead, and we had killed it. As the conspiracy had predicted, the world spiraled into chaos overnight. What else could have happened after tearing the foundation out from under a millennia-old world order? Nations burned, millions died, and anarchy reigned. Conspiracy agents took advantage of those early, confusing days to burn away evidence of humanity's involvement in the death of magic and to blame onto the conjunction. No one could ever know who committed the greatest crime in history, least of all ourselves. This is all to provide a clean slate needed for a century-spanning bet on humanity. The conspiracy never got to see if they'd won their gamble. The dark age that followed the death of magic was brutal. Without magic, the gifted races were dragged down into the mud to fight tooth and nail for what little had survived the collapse. It was a century of ignorance, barbarism, and superstition in which violence was the only law. What remained of the conspiracy died during this time. Most ranking members were lynched during the Vikral present revolt. Many more were killed in the unending border walls. The few that survived kept their blood oaths and passed on the knowledge of humanity's crime as a family heirloom. Before your ancestor was killed during the sack of Kaprovi, he passed the secret on to his son. For years, the secret has trickled down through our family by way of deathbed confessions. Now, it is your turn. When I realized my uncle had no more to say, all I could manage to blurt out was, My me. My uncle broke eye contact and then, after a moment, sighed. Because I couldn't bring myself to tell my own daughter, he explained. I didn't call you here because you're special to me, but because you're not. It's no gift to live with the burden of the conspiracy's crime. Our crime. You're insane, I said. It was the only explanation. I wish... I wish I hadn't lived with the burden of what we did, but someone had to. It wouldn't be right to forget. So no, I'm not insane. When you leave here today, go to my summer home and open up the safe in the library. The code is your cousin's birthday. Inside you'll find a stone imbued with a cord or so of magic. It was ejected from the threshold as it was destroyed. No other event could have produced such a mineral. It serves as proof of our crime. I chewed on this for a moment. In spite of myself, I believed him. Fine, I relented. But don't think I won't check. I'm sure you will. We sat in silence for a moment, my uncle gazing blankly at the window, and me, transfixed on his watery eyes. What happened next? I asked after a moment, my curiosity getting the better of me. What next? Well, what else? History. The HMS Lilac charts the policy. The Merm sisters take off in their flyer for the first time. The atom is split over Vaklau and ends a ten-year war. The Zuzelka Fort probe travels faster than light to an alien star. Humanity weathered the Dark Age. Maybe it was latent ingenuity or inherent savagery. But we clawed our way into enlightenment and the magically gifted did not. I considered this, 
So then, uh, it was worth it, I asked. The gamble paid off. You tell me. I followed my uncle's gaze out the window and took in New Yesagrol, the city of the world. Self-sustaining arcologies dominated the cityscape. Elevated vacuum trains ripped out of Yesagrol's central station, bound for the west coast. Autonomous multi-rotors carrying everything from fast food to release sensor pods dodged between skyscrapers. On the horizon, a heavy-lipped spacecraft streaked skyward. Sure looks like it to me, I remarked. It sure looks that way, my uncle agreed. But the gamble isn't over yet, and it will never be. I frowned my brow. How do you mean? Magic was a safety net. It kept the world boring, but a safe place. When we destroyed the threshold, we decided to go it alone for the sake of living in interesting times. If we failed, magic can't catch our fall. By our design, we live in a world with no spell to reverse climate change, to decontaminate nuclear fallout, or to stop a pandemic. We live on a knife's edge. That's a dire way of looking at it, I grimaced. I'm dying on that very knife. Medical science can do nothing for me, but cancers of my sort were easily cured during the age of magic, and I'm not the only one. So many millions, humans and otherwise, have suffered and died for this gamble to be made, for the world to be an interesting place. It's your job to not forget them. It's all of our jobs to make sure that it was worth it. Do you understand? I thought it over for a moment. And then I said, I do. Good, my uncle said, flashing a thin grin on his. Now get out of here, go live your life, and for me and for everyone like me, make it an interesting one. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1214. Story number one. Gamer Geeks vs. the Universe, written by Ak1308. Commander Akiki straightened his uniform. Checking for any imperfections. There were none. Next, he checked the troops who lined the sides of the room. Each and every one of them had been training absidiously in one and a half times gravity that the new sapient species thought was normal. They were fit and efficient, and every one of them an expert marksman. Send in the prisoner, he ordered. He'd been careful not to abduct a member of their military or anyone wearing a perceptible uniform, for that matter. Stories of how deadly their warriors could be abounded. This was apparently a male dressed in a slovenly fashion, with bad skin, lenses in a frame perched over his nose, his hair more than a little greasy, and somewhat returned around the midsection. A faint waft of stale body odor drifted to Akiki's nostrils. The prisoner, closely followed by two guards, stopped before the commander. Arkiki looked at the human male. Do you know why you are here? Eyes made larger by the lenses blinking frantically. Crap, uh, you, you, you talk English. Uh, uh, you, do you want me to take you to my president? Uh, he's the leader, I mean. One hand rose and his fingers spread oddly. Uh, live long and prosper. Arkiki simply stood there, allowing his presence to overwhelm the idiot human. After a long pause, the human mumbled the words, Katu Barada Niktu. One more time, Arkiki was wondering if they'd gotten a mentally deficient specimen. Do you know why you are here? Blink, blink, blink. Uh, no. 
You are here because I know full well that there is no single leader on Earth. Nobody rules everything, so I've chosen you as their representative. He gestured, and scrolls were brought forth. These are the regulations by which negotiations for surrender are made. You and I will perform these negotiations, and then broadcast the terms of your planet's surrender to the world. If they then resist... He let the words trailed off. They would resist. They always resisted. They never did any good. The human blinked again. Do I, um... Do I, I get a choice? No. Oh, feck. The human looked at the scrolls. What if I can't read those? He felt his patience running Then They have been translated into English for you. Oh. Commence reading. You have one Earth day to familiarize yourself. Then negotiation begins. He turned and left the chamber, the soldiers filing after. That had gone particularly well, he thought. There had been no combat. Nobody died. The human looked like a particularly unimpressive specimen. He found himself looking forward to the negotiations. One Earth day later, he arrived back in the chamber. The Earth human sat with scribbled notes all around him. A tray of mostly eaten food was off to one side. Have you prepared yourself? They could only be one answer, but he needed to ask the question anyway. Uh, sure, I think so. The human blinked. So, um, those rules are binding. All of them. Utterly and totally. It was a cornerstone of the Galactic League. Oh, okay. The human seemed uncertain. So, um, we're gonna do this. We are indeed going to do this. Arkiki sat and the negotiations began. After the first hour, he began to wonder what was going on. Each time he advanced a demand, it was derailed by a suggestion from the human. He thought that he was making progress, but he wasn't sure. After the second hour, he wasn't sure what was going on. The human kept overruling his suggestions, citing rule interpretations that barely, just barely, passed muster. Three hours in, Arkiki glared at his opponent. The human seemed unfazed, blinking occasionally behind his lenses, especially when consulting his copious notes. Those rules are not intended to be combined in that way, he gritted. Sorry, but you told me they're all binding, and they don't contradict, so, um... With a growl, Arkiki allowed the amendment. Okay, so I noticed and scroll through Article 97. Suppressing a groan, Arkiki reached for his stylus again. How was this human doing this? Arkiki stood in the bridge of the heavy cruiser and watched his flagship, his pride and joy, coast down towards the atmosphere of Earth. The autopilot would land it as gently as a falling leaf wherever the human, who was currently the only occupant, told it to go. In his hand, he clutched the agreement that had finally been arrived at between him and the human but now, Commander, the captain of the heavy cruiser was understandably nervous. He still didn't understand why Arkiki had given the human the battleship. We set costs for home, Arkiki clenched his teeth, and we announced a new alliance with the humans of Earth, in which they are the superior partners. But how? You do not want to know. Arkiki turned and strode from the bridge. He would, for the rest of his life, Regret the day he sat down opposite someone who was self-described as a gamer geek. That insignificant-looking human had taken the rules and twisted them so hard that they'd screamed. 
How does one even get that good at looking for edge cases? He suspected that he would never know. End of story. Story number two. All you have written by hypothetical Shagoth. Most species that make it to space have shown to have some edge that helped them out. Inherent tools that gave them a jump start to climb into space. The Chian have saliva that polymerizes when combined with their sweat and the juices of various fruits. The Vertuk, while often val-impaired, have such flexible, almost amorphous forms that they are able to manipulate items in three dimensions with just one limb. And often reach difficult locations by almost flowing up and through obstacles. Many predator species have famously sharp and precise cutting limbs, or sensory apparatus that are invaluable for materials engineering. The voids from his magnetic pulse organs allow them to intuit zero-g manipulation and refinement. While the core's four limbs have the infamously sturdy alternating layers of carbon composites acting as sharper blading behind an organic steel shell. The point is, Pretty much every item in a space's toolbox is redundant to at least one race out there, aside from one notorious outlier. Sure, their baseline physiology is built around growing at the edge of a gravitational limit of spaceflight, but for all that, they're still so squishy. No, shut up. I know about their bind strength, but nobody wants something that's been in one of their mouths. And even then, there's a fair chance they'll just try and eat whatever they use the mouth plates to chop. Astral wardens, but they're like an entire species of unattended larvae with full sets of manipulators and twice as prone to stick stuff in their faces on a good day. I'll grant that humans, at least the genetic baseline Terran stock, have clever manipulators. Their senses are pretty solid too. But the fact of the matter is, for pretty much any modern task on a ship, they need a dozen tools. More, after the fact, if you let them get away with, I only need a wrench and a hammer for too long. They know it too. They have tools for everything. As we've established, making sure that they use their tools correctly is a task to try a very patience of the saintly swarm. May its vigilant slumber remain eternally unbroken. Just because they have every tool for the job doesn't mean they'll use every tool for the job. That is where the insurance adjusters start frothing at their expiratory intakes. As an aside, they have a precursor species that was known as the tool-using humans. Most star-faring folk would think that such a species would be the ones that we all know and love, loathe, fear, and spend in the galaxy today. Nope. The humans we get to deal with now are the thinking humans, as much as the various cranks would claim otherwise. There is a popular train of thought that the precursors thought of how to use their environment to make tools. The current stock think of ways to knowingly misuse their environment or tools. It seems increasingly plausible with every report that is anonymously posted to our crap my human did, even accounting for points farming falsehoods. This brings us to the true problem. Humans lack natural tools to at a degree that most races have been blessed with. This has made them uh, inventive. A human lacking a tool, even by a dint of being too lazy to go down the hall and retrieve it from the tool mount, a brief walk and an easy excuse for a break, will often uh, improvise. Planet side, that involves finding rocks, plants, casings, all sufficiently sturdy life forms to drive in attachment spikes when doing structural work. For example, 
or using all sorts of code-breaking stand-ins for fuses just for now, or using magnetic field folder intended to create safe suspensions of reactive materials to, instead, somehow make a 10mm socket out of a folded and stabilized magnetic fields. Yes, Engineer Samuels, I know you read the forum when you're idle and shipped. You're brilliant, lazy lunatic. The shipboard RFID tracker said the relevant piece has been behind your station's desk for a quarter now, by the way. A human with the correct tool is a force of nature. A human with the incorrect tool will make nature step out for a bottle of bottom-shelf intoxicant and weep. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1250. Story number one. It didn't obey entropy. Written by Guncaster. The discovery of a contiguous stable tear in the fabric of reality was only the first in a long line of discoveries to utterly annihilate existing scientific consensus. Then there came the next, and after it, yet more were found, all in a line, following a clear pattern, always near the edge of a solar system, and nearly always leading to a system with planets thought to be inhabitable or possessing of valuable material resources. It was then, years and years after following this daisy chain of wormholes through the use of drone probes and highly advanced telescopes due to lack of funding and simple trepidation amongst those with power to prepare a manned expedition. Eventually, though, another pivotal discovery was made. An utter anomaly. It was, in simple terms, impossible, inconceivable, utterly incomprehensible. What at first had been thought to be a single star at the edge of a dwarf galaxy was soon found to be a pattern repeating across the entire galaxy itself. It could not be reconciled with any cosmological model, modern or archaic, established or purely speculative. Small by the scale of galaxies, though it was, it was still a galaxy, and it just, um, it wasn't losing energy. No matter how far through the cosmological fossil record their warp jumper probes went, the expected entropic pattern never emerged. It didn't follow the believed to be inevitable expansion of the universe. Not a single of its stars had died in the hundreds of million years of their supercomputers had scrubbed through. No supernovas, no black holes, no red or white dwarves, just a perpetual galaxy-wide golden age. And even as their probes approached the edge of the anomalous pygmy galaxy, more anomalies were transmitted back. Each system star possessed several artificial structures, great black rods in two series of three, and either one or two of their axis, bringing the count to either seven or eight. The scale of each outstripped any man-made structure ever conceived of. Yet, there they were, possessed of obvious signs like hangar doors, Elaborate buttresses and arches, and architectural flourishes with no conceivable point of function and... Statues. Each black rod was decorated by statues of what was presumed to be the builders of these structures. Or at least the abstractions of them rendered in the same humongous black material as the rods. An oval head, a central trunk from which four elongated limbs sprouted. The body layered wasn't new, per se merely an iteration upon the one of the more common patterns found amongst the myriad of species of the civilized spacefaring society. Deeper still, as the probes plunged, they found more megastructures, 
each grander in scale than the last. From artificial asteroid belts to colossal drone swarms, autonomously ferrying gases from gas giants to supermassive orbital works across the solar system. And wrecks. Massive wrecks. Wrecks from ships the size of planets, even four-limbed humanoid megastructures with joints and thrusters, and still readable warp engine signatures of such intensity that one struggled to comprehend how far and how quick they could jump. Not to mention the weapons. Each one of these dead cosmic titans bearing armaments the scale of which defied explanation, the payloads of which must have threatened to reach the very edge of what was plausible within the laws of physics. Many argue that the mere existence of these megastructures called all known theories about physics into question. And they were right. But what was the strangest about all these wrecks was the lack of any suggestion that they had been wrecked where they are now rested. There was not a bit of collateral damage, almost no free-floating debris. Then, at the very center of the cosmic graveyard, in the middle of the otherwise beautiful solar system, they found a megastructure that did not ignore the probe's presence, but actively pinged it in every way the probe could receive. It had a flat top and a bottom from which a great chain connected to nearby wreckage, and three sides upon the gigantic alien letters were scribbled. The megastructure ejected a canister, which upon pickup and analysis, the probe found to contain several diagrams that were surprisingly close to some species' recorded first contact packages. Yet still, very far. It included diagrams of the creator species, three physical tablets with two copies of writing on the monument, and a number of much smaller objects shaped like elongated versions of the megastructure itself, each labeled with a few of those alien symbols. It was some uh, unknown anomalous script, incomprehensible on a symbol-by-symbol case. Yet, when read as an entirety, though it was inflicted several migraines upon first-time readers, it was comprehensible in full regardless of the reader's linguistic capabilities. The first tablet read as such, To those who destroy us, rest and be forgotten. For you were never gods, and with our sires of steel, we remind you of the truth. The second tablet read, To those who thought themselves our betters, gaze upon our works, ye mighty and despair, for we are not gods, but men, and our work shall outlast yours. And the third tablet read, To those who come when we have departed, gaze upon our works, ye meek, and rejoice. For we are not gods, but men, and in our wake no world shall succumb to entropy. Never again. End of story. Story number two. The Lady of War, written by Echoing Cascade. The constant orbital barrage had been proven a fruitless endeavor. The castle's wall's fields had failed within an hour, but the ceramic and metal from which it was made took no damage from even the most powerful cannons aboard his flagship. Grand General Sole Master at Arms, Monon Father III, was at a loss for ideas. He had pledged his entire personal army to conquering this human settlement after the affront the Lady of War had thrown his way, and it was not looking good. His elite troops had taken the field earlier that morning. The dressed shadows of the tree's sons, 
They had won him many battles by clever infiltration and covert assassination. Yet they were found and soundly beaten by quadrupedal beasts the humans kept around their castles. His shock troopers, veterans of countless campaigns, were pushed back by the castle's defenders and the villagers nearby who came to protect their lord. Grand General Sol, Master at Arms, Monomonfer III, had to face reality. He was going to lose. No, he had already lost. The fact his troops had incurred no life-threatening injuries was a blessing, or more likely a testament to the Lady of War's magnanimous nature. He would sue for peace and make amends to prevent an all-out war with such a mighty race of warriors. Grand General Soul Master at Arms, Momenfer III, walked towards the human castle. He held no weapon other than the sword he presented on the flat of his hand. The Lady of War had accepted his surrender, and agreed to meet you in person. Monmonfer, I have come to beg for peace. He knew his people could ill afford a war if this isolated castle could hold his army by itself on a moment's notice. Locating this war chief would be a priority, and maybe he could gain them as a valuable ally if he played his cards right. The Lady of War approached him and picked up the sword. She nodded. What you did was uncalled for, and I'm certain representatives from both our species will have words. But today, we can have peace. At this, the humans present and General Momonfer breathed a sigh of relief. Some looked like wanting to shout, but a look from the Lady of War stopped them dead in their tracks. He was halfway out before Lady of War stopped him. Wait, just a moment. There is still the matter that started all of this. I hope you haven't forgotten. At the proclamation, the other humans emitted strange noises and some patted their faces in a peculiar way. Momonfer, yes, of course. The Lady of War had taken a place behind a throne. She adjusted her eyewear, grabbed one of her books of power, and listed his transgressions. You returned two books a week late. A third one had scribbles on multiple pages, and you removed the protective plastic sheath from the 2320's Guinness Book of Records. And I told you this morning, if you do not pay the fine of 132 credits by the end of the month, your library card will be revoked. Momenfer nodded. The punitive measures were rather fair now that he stopped to think about it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1216. Story number one. Patience is a virtue. Written by a lone donut. No other intelligent space-faring life form knows the concept of sunk cost fallacy. For most of them, wars can be ended simply by presenting their capability for further war, and the weaker one yields. Humans, however, will take anyone on out of pure spite. The shrieks fill the small war room. Not the sound of a tortured individual or the cries of a defeated foe begging for mercy. These shrieks were the kind of shrieks of pure primal frustration. The Dresk has shown that they had the capability to make war in a way the humans could never match. They didn't have the industrial capacity, the trade network, or the technology to take the Dresk Republic one-on-one. -on -one. Nor did they have the training, military numbers, or population to sustain the conflict in any meaningful way. On paper. That was the kicker, wasn't it? These hairless mammalian bipeds seemed to move forward not on logic, 
reason, or skill. Intuition was not the name of their species' highest skill set. No. Humans and their formerly fractured empire seemed to operate purely on spite and stubbornness. The Drusk has requested a concession of a minor system for mining, a system not previously even mined by the humans. In return, the owner of the system would have been granted 15% of all earnings from the system. An extremely generous offer. The response had been a swift no, bolded in a particularly scripted font. Someone had to go produce paper and ink solely for the purpose of sending the response. Within a month, a mining operation was set up. The Republic had then agreed to take the system by force. A simple operation, park a fleet in orbit of the barely habitable planet, used as a mining facility headquarters, and besiege the planet. A few planetary rotations, they would surrender. And now, the humans would gain nothing from the conquest but shame. In and out, an easy operation. Especially when humanity was given a quick rundown of what they would be up against. So the fleet arrived. The spaceport and military installations, if you could call it that, were destroyed. And a letter of request for surrender was sent. The Republic had expected the matter to be closed. The term get fecked had taken the translator a few hours to figure out. But once it had been deciphered, the annoyance grew. What possible resistance could less than a million humans put up in a backwater system? A blockade was placed around the planet, and mining vessels were brought into the asteroid belt to begin extraction. But the mining vessels were hit in an aggressive hit-and-run tactics. The blockade was struggling to keep supply ships from landing and supplying the planet, and the cost to keep up operation was growing day by day. Maintenance ships were brought in, more naval presence, anything to stop the attacks and starve out the squatters. Research was conducted, in hopes of better understanding the four that the dress commander had all but rolled his eyes, or would have if he had muscles to move his eyes, at the study of these creatures. They had risen to be apex of their species, not through the fastest reflexes, sharpest claws, or toughest armor. No. They had simply kept following their prey until it simply laid down and died. That was it. They were just more persistent than their enemies. Two solar cycles into the invasion, and with minimal cost to the humans were actually winning the conflict. Republic public opinion of the occupation was dwindling, and due to the constant setbacks, the mining facilities were not even worth keeping operational. Military losses were all past acceptable limits, and the government was starting to think that the entire venture was a waste of resources. Eventually, they were forced to simply pull out. The cost to maintain it simply too great to be worth it. They had even been forced to pay their own concessions for the resources the humans had expended leapfrogging their technology by decades. The commander had, of course, had the blame pinned on him. Reading the letter of recall, he was the one who had botched the operation, or that was how the government and military would spin it, the failure to hold a single system from an inferior species, a laughingstock in the streets, an escape goat in the chambers. Dresk researchers spent years studying the human behavior, the ability to put resources into a strategy that involves sitting and expecting their desired outcome in spite of any reasonable creature knowing that it wasn't worth it. And, in the future, 
in the backwater bar, the dress command of the invasion, long since disgraced, was sought out by some cocksure diplomats looking to invade a small human colony on their borders. They presented their idea, battle plans, and proof of combat superiority to the humans. On paper, they were the superior combatant. They asked the commander what he thought of the outcome would be. Hope in their eyes and fire in their stomachs. The Dresk, taking a sip of his drink, let out a noise as close to a laugh as his species had. You'll get fecked. End of story. Story number two. Crushing Expectations, written by Squiggly Story Studios. But Father Kukukwakt whined, tightening her grip on the human titer. I want this one. Akukukut sighed, letting several pheromone-laden flock clouds into the air to intensify his disgruntlement. You can't have this one, he asked. There are plenty of other multi-limbed constructs for you to consume, but this one is already betrothed. He flexed the muscly tentacles that supported as much of his body and mouth. I don't want to consume it, father. I want him to be my betrothed. You what? My betrothed, she insisted. But why? Her father looked at the very small, rigid being, who, for the most part, seemed to just exude a cloud of mix of fear and exhilaration. We were meant to be together. He sent me messages over Vox. You wouldn't understand. Really, I don't. Akukukut stared down at the tiny thing, wondering what the spawn of his could ever see in such a plain creature. You otherwise engaged student, why would you attempt to woo my daughter when you have already secured a union of your own? I, um, I didn't know, your majesty. The human tried to answer. Well, one of the Akakit's daughter's many tentacles coiled around his head. It was all a bit of fun on the voice boards, but, uh, I didn't realize how serious I was. Are you stating that my daughter's affection means nothing to you but entertainment? The alien overlord fumed. No, 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 please, please. It was all a misunderstanding, the human pleaded. He's mine now, father. You cannot tear us apart, Kukukwakut proclaimed a lump. And your other union. Are your parents aware of your misconduct? Kukukwakut snarled, baring his many, many dragon teeth. Oh, for the love of Cthulhu, please don't inform them. The human begged. You are ashamed of your transgressions. Good! And then end this foolishness now, or I'll indeed inform them. Akakakut gurgled smugly, having finally made the puny fleshling cower to his liking. All right, the human sighed sadly. Patrick, Kukuakut stammered her lover's name. Kukuakut. But you're a multidimensional hive-bind heiress. And I'm a cross-system mining magnet shareholder. It would never work out, Patrick admitted. But, but, uh, what about Alpha Centauri? Kukuakt cried. That system isn't big enough for the both of us to consume. Patrick shook his head in defeat. It's been fun, a lot of fun. And I'll never forget our planned conquest of Omeron Bay 7. Maybe one day corporations and hive minds can put aside their differences and we could control systematically all life and means of production. But until then, I have to honor my contract and facilitate the merger between the Shinwei Yutan, Unbrelai, and Pop's friendly robot company. Patrick! Kukuakt wiped the mucus from her leaking eyes. You'll be fine without me. I know you'll gestate the entire system in no time, Patrick replied encouragingly. 
You always know what to say. She slowly recoiled her tendrils from the human and slithered to her father's side. Okay, I'm ready to go now, Kakakoakt said quietly. Her father looked down at the tiny human. You have plans to conquer Omeran Base 7. The human smiled. Physically, systematically, and lawfully, it would only take five years, depending on the demands of the nutritional paste for slow-released radiation poison populace. Patrick replied, looking at his wrist comms. Perhaps I shouldn't have been so hasty, Akakakut murmured, licking his lips at the thought of consuming an industrious planet. Kakawakut, human Patrick, do you have time to discuss these plans? The human grinned with dark, black eyes. I can clear my schedule. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1217 A Friend in Need, written by C-SPAN Use Varys 4 for gravity assist, the computer said. Cut your travel time and fuel costs by 11.6%, the computer said. No appreciable navigation hazards, the computer said. Idiot that I am, I followed the computer's advice. Now, here I am. Crash-landed on the most battle-scarred planet in the galaxy, with no communications equipment and half an attack drone occupying what's left of my engine. It turns out flying straight through the middle of the largest debris cloud ever is a bad idea. Actually, who would have thought? I'm gonna die here. Verisvor wasn't the most hospitable planet before the walls, and it's actively hostile now. I'm not actually sure if there's anything left living on its surface. But if there is, I sure don't want to meet it. I have no way to call for help, no way to fix my engine, and I can't even go outside for more than three hours without the atmosphere melting my space-rated EVA suit. It was at this point that something banged loudly on the exterior airlock. Because of course it did. The universe loves to add insult to injury. So, now instead of suffocating, a few days from now, owls instead die in five minutes. Ripped apart by some remnant of a long-finished war. Just my luck. Come to think of it, that banging was oddly rhythmic. I'm no expert on weapon mechanics or mutant biology. All spacefight, apparently. But I feel that something trying to crack my ship in two and eat me would be doing more than rhythmically banging on the hatch. I cautiously grabbed a wrench and hit the outer hull twice in rapid succession. The banging stopped. Then, there were two answering bangs, a pause, and a renewed banging on the airlock. Okay, so whatever was doing the banging was at least intelligent enough to call and respond, and wanted me to come over to the airlock. Seeing no better options at the moment, I made my way over to the airlock. Spaceships generally don't have many windows, but there was a small porthole embedded in both the inner and outer airlock doors, so I could at least catch a glimpse of my new companion. Getting into position where the portholes aligned and I could actually see outside was difficult, as my entire ship was canted at a precarious angle. But with the help of my secondary hind limbs I managed, balancing awkwardly on a now useless control console, I steeled myself and looked outside. My first thought was that I was looking at some gigantic black-lidded eye, and I almost ran away there and then. However, upon closer inspection, I realized I was actually looking at the helmet of a black environment suit, with the pupil of an eye actually being the visor. Mutant bioweapons can't make environment suits, so I was looking at someone sentient. 
I may actually make it out of this alive. The figure noticed me at around the same time I noticed it, and it quickly backed away from the airlock door, waving an upper appendage at me. I mimicked the motion, not quite sure what else to do. It was apparently the right move as the figure moved back to the outer door of the airlock and proceeded to write on the window. Thank the stars for my implants, as I would have no idea what it said without a translator. Not that the message made much sense. What was Radio 43.5 MHz supposed to mean anyway? It took me longer than I would like to admit, but I realized that my visitor wanted me to tune my short-range radio to 43.5 MHz. I had completely discounted the radio in my assessment of my communications equipment, as it only had a range of a few kilometers in atmosphere, but it may now be my savior. I fervently hoped that it was still working. It was, thank the stars, and I tuned the requested frequency and said in a timid, Hello? There was no response for a few terrifying seconds. And then, Hey there, looks like you could use some help. It wasn't an arilash, of course, but the implants were wonderful things that translated audio as well as they did text. My savior was apparently speaking something called human Chinese. I tried to remember everything I could about humans, so I didn't accidentally anger my savior with a cultural blunder and cause them to leave. Okay, I'm pretty sure humans are bipedal and breathe uh, nitrogen. I really should have paid more attention in class. Guess I'm just going to have to wing it. Hoping that I wasn't somehow disparaging the human's ancestors through subtext, I toggled the radio and responded. Help would be greatly appreciated. I've got no long-range communications equipment and no way to repair my engine. There was a brief pause before a response. I figured as much. Uh, are you able to come outside? My home is about two hours away and we can get you help from there. Two hours was a worryingly close to the projected suit melt time, but it didn't really seem like I had any better options. I retoggled the radio and said, I've got a space-rated EVA suit that my ship's computer says will last about three hours in this atmosphere. Will that be enough? The response came quickly, and my implants also helpfully informed me that the tonal analysis indicated that my would-be rescuer was concerned. That's not ideal, that's for sure. Normally, I would just leave you here and go back and call for help myself. But the attack drone you crashed into is currently eating your ship to try and self-repair. And I don't think that we have that kind of time. Well, uh, that was bad news. I checked, and sure enough, hull integrity status near the engine bay was markedly lower than it was when I crashed. I couldn't actually see the drone myself, but the numbers didn't lie. If I didn't leave here soon, I would die. Flicking the switch on the radio, I said, I think you're right. I'm going to get suited up and exit the airlock as quickly as I can, if that's all right with you. The response came almost immediately. Copy that. Suiting up was usually a two-hour long process, but I'd been flying alone for long enough that I was able to manage it on my own, though not without difficulty. My suit up and exit time certainly wouldn't be breaking any speed records but it was at least before now inevitable hull failure. Clamoring awkwardly out of the airlock, I finally got a good look at my rescuer. I was right. Humans were bipedal. My savior had only two upper limbs, but that may have been the normal amount for humans. I couldn't make out much beyond the basic body shape because they were completely covered in the same black environment suit that encased their head. 
Definitely a strange-looking species, but not the strangest I'd seen. They looked at me for a moment before beckoning me towards a small vehicle with an upper limb. I realized that I hadn't set my suit radio to the proper frequency, and hastily did so, before pointing out the obvious. I'm not going to fit inside there. While the vehicle did have two seats, they were obviously designed for humans, whose bodies apparently bent in ways mine did not. My savior seemingly realized the same thing as he said, Yeah, I noticed that too. I think your best bet is to ride in the back. The vehicle had a flat bed with short sidewalls, presumably for hauling cargo. It wouldn't be the most comfortable ride, but it would work. I clambered into the back of the vehicle and watched with interest as my rescuer got inside and turned it on. Bipedal creatures were so strange, it seemed like they would fall down all the time. I have no idea why they didn't just have more legs. All of that active balancing looked exhausting. But who was I to judge? Soon enough, we were on the move. We rode in silence for a while before my rescuer broke the silence, saying, I just realized I never properly introduced myself. My name is Socks. What's yours? Translators were good at many things, but personal names were not one of them. For that reason, a lot of individuals opted to have a second name that was easily translatable now in order to facilitate communications. Mine was Parsley, and I said as much. Nice to meet you, Parsley. Where were you headed for before you crashed? Varus 3, actually, on a business trip. Well, you're in luck, my friend. I think we've got a ship headed for Varus 3 today to pick up some supplies. I'm sure they can find a bit of room for you. This was good news indeed. Normally, you'd just be forced to wait for a ship to come by in a rescue scenario. Something that would take weeks if you were lucky. The fact that I would be off of this wretched planet before the day was over was a welcome relief. But it did raise an interesting question. Socks, do you live here by choice? I assumed that you were either stuck or exiled here. But if you're sending out crude vessels for supplies, surely you would leave at any time. And you said, we. Are you implying that there's a whole community here? They laughed before saying, Slow down there, Parsley. You sound like a kid. Yeah, me and a couple other folks are here by choice. It's actually not so bad if you don't mind the acid lakes, hunter-killer drones, radiation, weaponized bioforms, and the storms. My response, I think, was perfectly natural. But why? Why live on such an obviously hostile planet when there's much more habitable ones in the same system? Socks sighed before saying, yeah, a lot of reasons. Some people lived here before the war and refused to move. Some people are here to try and heal some of the scars left by the war, turn the planet habitable again. Some are just here for their isolation, as a way to get away from the crowded flow of society at large. And you, Socks? Why are you here? I'm keeping a promise I made to a friend a long time ago. She's dead now, but the promise still stands. Ah, my condolences. It's all right, she died a long time ago. This was clearly a sensitive subject, so I decided to stop talking. No point in digging out old wounds just to satisfy my curiosity. The rest of the ride progressed in relative silence, interrupted only when I asked a question about the feature of the landscape and Socks informed me with the horrifying weapon that had caused it. In that manner, the rest of the journey progressed quickly. When we arrived at the small town where Socks lived, I was surprised to see that it was above ground. Sure, it was a series of interconnected reinforced biodomes, but I was expecting an underground bunker 
or something of the like. Socks, who had been quiet for a while now, suddenly spoke. I talked to the guys running the cargo ship and they said they'd be happy to take you to Varus 3. They're leaving in about 20 minutes though, so no time for me to give you the tour. They drove me to the cargo ship, a dated looking model that had clearly seen some use. The crew of two were standing outside, and they introduced themselves as Wheelbarrow and Persimmon. My EVA suit was flashing several integrity warnings at this point, and I was anxious to get inside the ship. But first, I needed to talk to Socks. Thank you so much for rescuing me, uh, I, I don't have much, but you're welcome to whatever remains of my ship as payment. Socks responded immediately. No need for payment, friend. I am happy to help. If you want to bring the salvage crew down here and get your ship, go for it. He paused for a moment, as if considering something before saying. Keep in touch, why don't you? My EVA suit flashed an indicator, showing that I'd just received a long-range com code. It also showed several more integrity warnings. I needed to get inside, but first, a goodbye. Of course, sucks. Such unqualified charity is a rarity these days, and despite what you may say, I remain in your debt. Can't do much, but if you ever need help, just ask. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. With that, he turned and walked away in the strange manner of bipedals. My suit had escalated to auditory alarms at this point, and I hurried inside the safe atmosphere of the ship. We launched a few minutes later, and I watched as the planet that could have so easily been my demise fall away below me. It seemed odd to me that anyone would choose to live there, especially someone as kind as Socks. But the galaxy was a strange place filled with even stranger people. Socks and I kept in regular correspondence for years afterwards. They never did call in the favor I owed them, and I never found out what their promise was. We never even met each other face to face again. Despite this, we remained steadfast friends, and I now look back fondly on the accident that almost took my life. And, in my own small way, I've tried to pay forward the generosity and kindness a stranger once showed me on a cold and harsh world. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1218 Little Trouble in Big China, written by Q00U The stealth ship Voider appeared in the far reaches of the heliosphere with no fanfare, as expected. Tun, the navigation specialist, burbled in the liquid of his tank. Cold warp successful, the mechanical voice of Lumos, the ship's computer, translated Tun's message. Dejux, the expedition specialist for this covert operation, nodded. So far, so good. Captain Axer expectantly turned his eye stalks towards the risk assessment specialists. Zealots. We're on the far side of their star, so... Zealots began to report. We have timed our approach to align with an occultation between Sol and the binary planet, Luna. Hence the need for such an immediate launch. Dejux made a shrugging type motion. Sorry for the late notice. Axa didn't feel that Jujux was sorry at all. We will transition from behind Sol to behind Luna as the arc of our probe matches the orbital speed. Zenith continued. Once positioned behind Luna, we will be free to launch a cloaked probe to the surface. All of this is simply precautionary as it is exceedingly unlikely that a civilization at their level of technology would be able to detect Voida in the first place. 
Akza gestured for Tan to proceed. Once Voida was underway, Jujux explained to Aksa, We wouldn't even be able to survive on the surface, even in exosuits, but uh, some human tissue was acquired in our previous foray. We can uh, have up to 29 earthling clones grown by the time we arrive. Ovu read off the small display that had carried to the bridge. We can start on the 30th, but it won't be ready in time, unless you want to wait. The Jukes shrugged again. We just need one single adult human captured alive for this mission. 29 should be plenty. Right, Zenits? Prepare for maximum amount. Now that the bridge crew had been introduced and the exposition dumped, the mission could begin. Destination reached. Probe launched with 29 clones, over reported. Loomis, please scan the surface for firearms, the Jukes asked politely. Firearms, Axa hadn't had the time to learn about the target planet conditions yet. Firearm, weapon with metal tube from which bullets are propelled by explosive force. The planet is metal rich, Zedits further explained. Garbled with the dense nature of its inhabitants, which makes them resistant to most low-power energy weapons. Firearms became their current standard. Axa swayed his eye stalks. Such a violent species! The view screen's display of Earth's surface became speckled with mauve dots. The universal color for danger. There uh, are unexpectedly large area with no firearms at all. Axa's eye stalks raised up in surprise. Sir, those are the oceans, Zealots pointed out. No people means no weaponry. No people in the oceans, even with the high gravity. Axe's eye stalks couldn't go up any higher. That is just poor evolutionary planning, Loomis translated tons bubbles. Loomis, match high population density with low firearm density, Jujux instructed. Specifically, find a human currently isolated in such an area. Match found, one human alone on a rooftop, no weaponry detected nearby. Local language matches planet's dominant language, Ovus said. The clones will be able to communicate with the target. The Jux gave a satisfied nodding-like gesture. Launch the probe. Ovu relayed reports from the clone team. Initial contact made. The clones are explaining our goal. The target appears to be compliant. Perhaps this will be settled without violence. Clone one defeated by a broom. What? Axe's eye stalks wiggled in confusion. Broom, a long-handled brush with bristles used for sweeping. A weapon. Zealots frowned. Loomis, update the display, Dejex commanded. Mark all the locations this broom weapon is. More mauve dots appeared. Over communicated with the clone team. Deploy the glue trap. Clone 2 defeated by glue trap. Over looked up at Axa and Dejex. The target used the broom, his shoes, socks, and clone 2 to get to the edge of the roof. He fell through the awnings to reach the street below. One of Axa's eye stalks turned to Loomis's display. Awnings? Awning, sheet of material stretched on a frame, used to keep the sun or rain away. Pursue the target, Jujux commanded. Clone 3 destroyed by gravity. Was, uh, was that not the normal way to descend to ground level? Jujux expressed confusion. Ovu directed the remaining clones to the stairway and elevators. Axa was nervous. I don't like being this visible. There are other humans nearby. The target is no longer isolated. Market. A gathering of people for the purchase and sale of commodities. Zealots agreed, but 
If the target escapes, there will be no way to avoid evidence of our presence. Clone 4 defeated by Vase. Vase? Axa asked. Is that another weapon? Loomis, explain new terms as they use them. Vase, fragile decorative container made of china. Axa was still confused. If it's so fragile, how did it function as a weapon? Wouldn't it just shatter inconsequentially? Over reported. Apparently, the target used the vase as a distraction and defeated the clone using only his feet. The vase itself was never broken. A weapon of distraction, the Jukes pondered. Update the display again. Once all possible weapons are marked, we'll know how to be safe. Clone 5 defeated by Peppers. Pungent due to capsation, Peppers used as food. Food is also a weapon. Axa gave the equivalent of a sigh. Target chewed them up and spit them into his fists. Over, relayed the reports from the clones on the ground. Mark weapons the target uses, the Jukes uses. His capsaicin dangerous to us. Not us, Over said, but the clones are made from human tissue. So they are vulnerable. Clone 6 damage by breaking glass. Hard, brittle, transparent substance used to let light in. Target has entered the building through the breaking glass. Even the way they enter structures is violent. What? Is the nature of that building a furniture store? Furniture, movable equipment, tables, chairs, used to make a space suitable for living or working. Since these furnitures are for living areas, are they, um, Axa dared to hope. Safe? Clone 7 defeated by chair, seat for one person. More dots appeared on the display. They live surrounded by weapons. Weapons make their space suitable for living and working. Axa was traumatized. These humans are a nightmare. Clone 8 defeated by Hapkado, a form of unarmed martial art. Even when they're not armed, they're armed. Clone 9 has secured target via wrist manacles. Success, said Jax. Clone 10 defeated by Clone 9. He's even using the clones as weapons against other clones, Axa said. Target has dragged Clone 9 into the hardware store. What's in there? Hardware tools, machinery, and other durable equipment. Clone 11 defeated by plunger, a tool to clear blockages in drains and pipes. Clone 12 defeated by pipe, a system to convey fluids from one location to another. Clone 13 defeated by chain, a serial assembly for connected pieces. Clone 14 defeated by brick, a clay building material used to make walls. Clone 50 defeated by SIP, a structural insulating panel used in the construction industry. More and more dots filled the display. Over half of the clones have been defeated, said Zinitz. Target has exited the building with the Clone 9. Apparently, he was cutting the manacles off with a saw while fighting the other clones earlier. Now Target has fled the market area and entered the neighboring industrial complex, Over said. It's a rope and stepladder factory. Clones 16 and 17 defeated by rope. A strong cord made of twisting fiber strands together. More dots. Clone 18 and 19 defeated by ladder, a series of steps between two lengths of wood used for climbing. More dots. Clone 20 and 21 defeated by bicycle, a vehicle composed of two wheels held in a frame. Where did that come from? Axa said. A factory worker used it for transportation to work. Target is now using it to flee. Clone 22 defeated by door, a hinged barrier at the entrance of a structure. Target knocked on it as he passed, apparently as a signal to the human inside. 
who opened the door, which the clone impacted. Uvu frowned. Remaining clones are unable to keep pace with the target's speed. Recall them back to the ship. The mission is a bust. The jukes. The display was almost entirely mauve. Probe secured. Uvu. Now what, Axa? It is likely that the escaped target will notify the authorities. Our remaining time here is limited. Zenits. We have enough time for one more attempt, Jujek said. Finish growing another batch of clones and we'll grab a different target. Clone 23 defeated. There was a silent pause as they processed the new information. Defeated by what? Axa said. Clone 24 defeated by Hapkido. The, the target, he's on the ship, Axa said. Their target had a speed advantage and enough time to return to the rooftop hiding in the probe and waiting for the remaining clones to return and deliver him to our location. Clone 25 and 26 defeated by Hapkido. Wait, this is an opportunity. The target is currently on the ship alive, the Duke said. Clone 27 defeated by Hapkido. Loomis, increase oxygen level to safe maximum, the Jukes. Clone 28 defeated by Hapkido. Wasteful, but um, why, Maxa said. Wasteful for us, but the human is accustomed to a lower oxygen concentration. The Jukes gave the equivalent of a grin. He'll suffer from oxygen intoxication. There was a pause while they waited for, hopefully, a notification that the target had been captured safely. Clone 29 defeated by Shaolin Drunken Boxing. Crewman Quiltop defeated by Shaolin Drunken Boxing. Crewman Koi Jolt defeated by Shaolin Drunken Boxing. Security Officer Aukix defeated. The ship computer dispassionately announced each fallen member of the expedition. He's making his way to the bridge, Ovu said. Security officer Yif defeated. Crewman Talna defeated. Sweet veteran's kindly claw. Captain Axon shivered in his seat. A fight in the hallway leading to the bridge could be heard through the translucent shieldway, but too far away to see yet. Navigation specialist Tun wailed under the liquid of his tank. Security Specialist Flincio defeated. Lab Technician Nurtles defeated. What do we do? Axa despaired. To have loosed this beast aboard the ship. Security Specialist Rasha Ray defeated. Security Specialist Rubam defeated. Silence. The beast had reached the bridge shieldway. When it hold, Dijux turned to Axa. Probably. Axa started. Bang! 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 The thin shieldway collapsed. Not, Axa finished lamely. The terrifying target entered the bridge. He was carrying a baby. The thirtieth clone, Ovu said. Axa trembled. It was like a vase all over again. The target, he was dangerous. The target holding a baby, catastrophic. But you, he stammered. You said that you were compliant. No, Jackie Chan said, holding up the baby. I said I don't want trouble. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1290 Story number one Human make us such easy prey, Sysanic Valdez had passed another of his rangers, this time sat slumped against the moss-covered rock, a single arrow protruding from the young elf's chest. A single, quaint, crimson stain discolored his tunic, and beneath his hood his pale features were stark. A single tear ran Valdez's stern features. As he closed the dead elf's eyes, the slain ranger was a close friend of his. It has taken another of our brothers, 
A soft voice asked behind him. He looked over his shoulder at the lithe form of Alana, a senior woodland ranger and personal advisor to the clan elder. Her own bow, a beautifully sculpted weapon crafted from the wood of the pale bark evergreen tree, was held in her hands. Her piercing grey eyes stared at Valdez, awaiting an answer. Regrettably, yes, Valdez's smooth voice replied. That makes six. Six souls this barbarian will pay for. Alana hissed, baring her teeth, and they said humans made such easy prey. The city humans are the prey. They lurk like rats within the stone walls, foolishly lulled into security by their castles and fortresses. Many have fallen to my arrows without knowing that I was there. Valdez replied, unholstering his own bow and raising his hood to cover his sharp features. But the wild men, they are the exciting ones. I've only hunted a handful, and even then, they're no fiercer than the others. Exciting is not the word that I would use. Just because a human has gone feral does not mean it's worth any more than a city dweller. Alana growled. Now, let's pick up the trail and find this beast. The two elven rangers ran silently, their footsteps no louder than a mouse's as they glided through the silent forest, sometimes taking their stride to the tree branches to gain a vantage point when they thought they caught a scent or a trail. After an hour of this repeated process of run, stalk, stop, run, stalk, stop, they decided to catch their breath and pause. I must admit, Valdez whispered between his sips of water from the river. This human is interesting. Alana snapped her head to look at the other elf. Her brow furrowed in anger. I mean, uh, what other human have you known to slay six elven rangers with a weapon that we are renowned for being peerless with? Do not speak of our brothers like they are mere pawns. You sound like you admire the world blight, the lumberfoot, she snarled, casting the water in her hand to the ground. I'd submit my immortality before I accept to be bested by a filthy round ear. It hurt Valdez's heart to hear a woman of her stature be so crude, but she did not speak wrong. It was almost taboo to admire the humans in elven culture, as they had been responsible for a lot of the slavery and deforestation in the past centuries. All I'm saying is that this certain prey is worthy of our caution. It has evaded us for days now, and has slain warriors of our ranks. One would dare to think that the mere evidence of trails that we have found could have been purposely blazed. A bait trail, if you will, Valdez suggested. Alana snatched at the dagger that hugged her thigh and pointed it at the other elf. Suggest our order to be anything than the best, and I will willingly prove that we are the superior beings. She stopped her rent as a dagger and hand disappeared instantly. The thing that took them could have been anything. But the fact that her dagger, still clutched in her severed hand's fingers, stood impaled in the tree beside her by her black wooden arrow cast away any suspicion. Alana gripped her severed wrist and fell to her knees in a silent scream, the voice refusing to pierce the silence. Instantly, Valdez fired an arrow at the exact trajectory that the black arrow had come from, but he knew as soon as he loosed the bolt that he had made a fatal mistake. A second arrow propelled from another direction, this time catching the bow and splinting the century-old weapon to pieces. Valdez unsheathed his own dagger as a black figure dropped from the trees to ground level. It landed beyond the river and stood facing the two elves. 
Another arrow, a ready poised to strike either of them down. Who are you? It growled. It spoke in human dialect. Its words were harsh and brutish. We are rangers of the Everglebe Tree, and you have been trespassing on our lands for seven days now. Baldis answered, dagger still firmly in his hands. And I would demand you leave our lands. Is that so? The human said, stepping forward into the moonlight. The human wore the pulse of slain animals and had a ritualistic-looking face paint on. What do I gain from leaving? You won't be hunted any longer, Baldis said. We will cease our pursuit and you may leave unattested. Hunted, the human said, taking another step forward. That implies that you are the predator. We have been chasing you and you have been fleeing, Baldis commented. Your words would be correct. Fleeing? The human chuckled, lowering his bow. Baldis felt his muscles tighten as the human took another step forward. In one more step, he could lunge and take the human's throat in a blink of an eye. Or, um, leading. Baldis was glad he didn't decide to lunge, as when the human suggested that he wasn't being followed. Five more humans emerged from the trees, all dressed in rudimentary forms of camouflage or animal skins. They each had an arrow poised at the elves that stood in silence. We come from the Beast Hunters Guild and are here to find and slay the werewolf. Your hunting of us has only delayed our victory and frightened off our quarry. So go back to your Evergleam with haste. Take your bravado with your mute friend here and tell your elders the humans are no longer to be hunted. We'd hoped that the corpses of your friends would have put you off hunting us. The human growled. But then I heard what you said about hunting humans and how we made such easy prey. So we decided to teach you arrogant knife ears a lesson. He gestured to Alana, who was still staring at a stump in shock. Seems to me that the eight elves that have been tasked with my death is now down to two, one of which will never be an archer again. I would suggest that you redefine the meaning of the word prey. Valdez sheathed his dagger reluctantly, relaxing his muscles as he watched the humans disappear into the trees once more. The human leader was still staring at him as he broke eye contact to pick up Alana. Valdez looked up at the human in hopes that he could remedy the conflict by thanking the human for sparing the pair's life. But the humans were gone, disappearing into the night without a single sound. A sob finally came from Alana, who managed to look up at Valdez with a fear-stricken eyes and a paler face than usual. They, they made us the prey. End of story. Story number two. The Things They Left Behind, written by Captain Cautious. I pray they never return. They might want their old stomping grounds back. Humans vanished long ago, but their touch on this galaxy is unmistakable. Certain factions even worship them. Human monuments and structures are regarded as sacred by the devout. You cannot really blame people for doing that. Human works are millennia ahead of anything that we can achieve. There is an entire group of solar systems with planets that are geometric shapes. How they did it, we have no idea. But there is a system with a cube-shaped planets, and another with diamond-shaped planets, and a dozen more equally amazing. Perhaps it was an experiment they performed. Maybe just a temporary fashion. We may never know. There is another wonder in a particularly empty section of space, something the humans called a Dyson Sphere. 
like a soda system turned inside out. A star in the middle of a giant shell. How they moved enough material to build this is a mystery second only to how it stays in one piece. Perhaps another experiment. Some regard these works as the pinnacle achievements of a race that has long since slipped into legend. But I worry that we've been so very wrong in judging just how much the humans could achieve. You see, I can read most of their languages. It is not easy. They were convoluted and used words that reference ideas that reference other words in other languages and often trap you in a circular linguistic path for days before you manage to grasp what they were talking about. That is what led me to one of their structures. A colleague invited me to translate a particularly difficult section of the chapters in one of their logs. The structure itself is beyond beautiful. Four great stars are balanced in a perfect tetrahedron. Normally, this many stars so close to each other would result in a colossal collision in a few years, spewing hot plasma far off into space. We've found places where we think this was done by the humans, but this is different. These stars have been tethered to each other, a giant lattice structures between them. Somehow, they manage to control these giants. Even the solar flares are incorporated. Forced to dance and intertwine in specific ways that form the most intricate patterns. From the control point that I am in, I can only see a small portion of the structure. You need to view it in a hollow projector to fully appreciate it. The size is not what has my attention now, though. It is the last few lines of text that have left me speechless. It goes to show how we have underestimated humans by several orders of magnitude. The structure was not built by the best... The most advanced. Completed 1622-3-5 PCE. Designed and built by the graduating class of Cochrane Elementary School. If they ever returned, they might just brush us aside on accident. Like dust sitting in an empty room when their owner returns. This wonder wasn't built by their best. It was built by their youngest children. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers. <laughs>